0: Today, I am speaking with Lawrence Krauss. Many of you know Lawrence's work. He is a well-known physicist and author. He regularly writes for The New Yorker, and he is also a famous atheist. He was in the film The Unbelievers with our partner in crime, Richard Dawkins. Lawrence does many different things. He runs the Origins Project at Arizona State University. He is the author of several books, and he has a new book out, Titled The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, where he tells the story of how we've come to understand the universe to the degree that we have. And he and I spoke about many things. There are not many conversations where you can get into the weeds of quantum mechanical experiment and then also talk about terrorism and nuclear war and Trump and things of that sort. So we cover a lot. And I would say if you're short on time, The last hour or so is probably the most important part, but I enjoyed all of it. Lawrence is fighting the war of ideas on many, many fronts, and so it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. And without any more preamble, I now bring you Lawrence Krauss. I am here with Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: It's great to be with you virtually, Sam.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're actually. Rarely in the same place physically. We're often on the same email thread, but I guess I last saw you at at the um, Asilomar AI conference.
1: That's right. Yeah, we were at a uh, uh, that AI meeting together. That was the last time. It's always pleasant, and uh, it's always pleasant to think of you know things that may destroy humanity. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the list is growing. It yeah, seems. exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I get to you know I'm I'm chairman of the board of the and the Atomic Scientists, and we. We, we, we set the Doomsday clock, but we had a symposium every year where we'd go into that. It used to be called the Doomsday Symposium, which was always cheery. We changed the title.
0: Yeah, I, I actually want to get to that because I want, I want to talk about some of the threats. But yeah, so let, let's just start with the various games you're playing because you're doing many different things. You've Obviously, you do science. You're a theoretical physicist. You're an educator. You run the Origins Project at Arizona State University. You write books. You have a new book out that we will touch on. and That's uh, good. <laughs> yes. There's definitely more that I want to talk about than, than sure. is in your book. And I never like these conversations to act as surrogates for mm-hmm. interested readers actually buying your book and reading it. So you, this, there, there's no way that the book will be redundant on the basis of what we talk about here. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks. And I, I encourage people to buy your book because you are a, a fine and clear writer. And uh, this is a very interesting book. As you are. Anyway, yes. And uh, all of that, all of those recommendations were far more sincere than they may have sounded. <laughs> but you also, you write in The New Yorker, which is great. I mean, The New Yorker has been, frankly, fairly bad on science for a good long while. And it's really great to have your voice in there. You don't have to agree with me. I know you you now are an employee of The New Yorker. No,
1: no, 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 no. I I think I'm surprised that I can get my voice. And I only, to make it clear, I am only allowed online. I'm not allowed on the, all my pieces only appear online in The New Yorker. They don't appear in the hallowed real hard copy. You know, I didn't even know that because I I read everything like that online now. Me too, I, I do too. But I want to make it clear in case people thought I was somehow more eminent than I am,
0: <laughs> do you understand the basis of that decision? Is that? Yeah, actually...
1: I think I think uh, frankly, I think part of it is that there's a different culture for the online edit, editorials and there are, and and work than there is in the in the magazine. I think. <laughs> I sympathize to some extent with what you say about the science at the New Yorker. And uh, it's I wish wish there could be more science in there because uh, one of the things we may get to and one of the things I, I push a lot because I believe in it is that science is part of our culture and we have to integrate it more, more heavily. And that's part of the problems that we're experiencing now, in my opinion, politically, too. And so, you know, if, if to the extent that New Yorker is kind of a magazine of culture, the fact that science there, you know, there are profiles of scientists periodically, mm-hmm. but but it's not. You know, it's not treated on the, as the same kind of, hey, interesting cultural aspect as, as movies or, you know, literature or whatever. So it's, I wish it was.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's that problem. It's just the, the problem of there not being enough science or science not being viewed as, as sexy or as, as culturally relevant as as the humanities. But there's also just the problem of scientific error and yeah. anti-science being propagated
1: which is surprised the errors are always surprising because one thing i found about the new yorker and i'm probably jumping in away from where yeah. you want to go no, but, but i'm happy to. but one of the things I've, I've found is that you know i write for them they edit more heavily and fact check more carefully than any any place i've ever written for mm. and so it, it is surprising in some sense that scientific error i mean pseudoscience and anti-science is different i mean they can have a slant yeah and there's a and that slant occurs a lot in in among certain people, especially in the humanities for for various reasons which you might get into, but so I can understand that, but it's sad when scientific error gets into
0: yeah and and then you you also do debates as I occasionally do with religious crackpots of one flavor or another, so this is just a question about how you divide your time because it's not even clear to me how much each of these boats you're rowing in gets your your weight how would you describe what you do on a Weekly or monthly basis?
1: Yeah, well, it's it. I wish I had a strategic plan, and a, a and I di- I did divide my time strategically. I don't. I tend to just sort of be doing something, and 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 I like. First of all, I like to juggle lots of things, and I think it. Uh, it's I think it's basically because I'm frankly lazy. I think if I'm not occupied, I tend to do nothing. Hmm. And uh, but I tend what I do is I tend to focus on one thing. You sometimes because I'm angry. I mean, sometimes because I get emotional about it. If I'm writing or agree to do a debate or stuff. But um, but I but I. And then I'll move to something else. So, so I, if I'm excluding something, if I'm not doing science for a while, I, I kind of feel like a fraud. So I, uh, uh so I, I, just try and balance it, but it really, there's no real plan. I just do as many things as I can do because, um, uh, frankly, because I enjoy doing all of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, and, and that's really a point that, that I think is really important to stress that I do science like many scientists, not because I'm trying to save the world, but because I enjoy it. And the same reason I write and do other things, but also because in my own personal perspective, I think something is worth doing. If it takes time for something else, if I think it has some background importance, I think it's worth I, I, I do that. And, and to some extent, maybe it's a kind of guilt also, frankly, Sam, in the sense that the, the physics I do is very esoteric in general and quite. Quite abstract, and I think it's profoundly interesting because it addresses these fundamental questions about our existence. But, but from a from from the perspective of touching daily the lives of people, or in an immediate way improving their lives, it, it doesn't. And so I think part of the reason I I get involved uh, politically and in the and and socially is to some extent to make up for that aspect of my of my life. Uh, uh, if you understand. Mm. Uh, and and so I think that's why I jump around, but, but yeah, a lot of hats and, and sometimes too many, there's no doubt about it, especially too much travel. But I think, uh, but what I try and do is to go from one thing to another intensively. And I don't know if you've had this, but you know, it's true. I did just finish a book and I find after the book is done as I'm now I'm, I'm talking about it. I have no, I, I have no memory of writing it for the most part. And I, I wonder how the hell I did it
0: yeah yeah because
1: <laughs> I don't seem to have time for anything else, right anything right now and and so it's interesting i i think I think uh book writing is kind of like having a baby in the way because you, you you if you remember what labor was all about and the whole thing, you probably wouldn't have a second one, and I think it's probably beneficial to forget the whole experience.
0: Yeah, my problem is that I do remember what labor was all about, and I keep pushing <laughs> off my book deadline
1: <laughs> uh, oh're I've always thought you're wise, so there you go. <laughs> I'm more impetuous, but anyway, uh, so I'm lucky. And I guess the, the point is I, I think pop probably because again, to be quite honest and frank, I think a number of things, things, uh, came over a long time of doing things with no notice for what I was doing. And so therefore it's hard to turn down things that I think are useful or important. Mm-hmm. And I w- and I really working on that to try and turn down. So it's hard to say no. So I often say yes to too many things. And then I just end up having to do them.
0: Right. Well, so what do you think about the utility of doing debates of the sort that we've yeah. both done? I mean, I, I don't know how recently you've done one. Are, do you think they're worth doing? Do you regret doing any of them? I,
1: I, I, I often regret them. Uh, I think, look, I think the debate format is a very poor format. It's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical format. It's not really meant for education or information. It's, it's really based on, it's sort of smoke and mirrors. And so that, from that perspective, I'd much rather have a conversation, uh, or a dialogue than a, than a, than a debate. But I have found as you, you probably found the same thing. That's, it surprises me when after I've done a debate, like, why the heck did I do that? That people, I mean, you never do a debate to try and win, beat the person you're, or to try and convince the person you're debating. Who you're talking to is of course the broad middle, mm-hmm. it particularly, The people who it's nice to have the fans on either side, I suppose, but the real people you talk to, the people who've never thought about the issue and who you think would be swayed potentially by a smooth talking huckster. And it's, and so if you can reach those people who haven't really thought deeply about it and, and, and influence them to start thinking about it, um, then that, that, then I think it's worthwhile. And I've been surprised even the debates that I've afterwards gone and say, Ooh, I just had this sick feeling. I, I really uh, uh, awful. Why did I do that? That people afterwards have said, you know, I watched that and that impacted my thinking in know, and, and, and so I guess it's useful. The big problem is that there are people who want to debate people with a relatively high profile say, because of course it, when the minute they're on stage with you, they get a validation mm. that, that they wouldn't have otherwise. And it's hard to know how to deal with that because you want, you don't want to validate them you, often. And Richard Dawkins has done this often. He'll refuse. He'll say, I refuse to even debate this person. And it's great. Then that a person has a, goes on stage and has an empty chair and all that. But the way I, I sometimes try and get around it. And it's very difficult to be the bad guy on stage, but there been one or two times where I think these people, you know, I don't mind debating people who I think are honestly in error, <laughs> mm. who who believe what they say and, and one can have a discussion with them about it. But the people that really upset me are the people, you know, are real hucksters who are just lying because they, they, they're trying, they, they can, and they have a smooth stick and they, and, and they want to, and they want to, 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 to sort of fool people. And those people, what what I've done in a number of debates, and it's not easy, is try is attack them, is basically point out how how they're they're lying, and mm-hmm. it's difficult to do, when because people are come to an event, they want to be people of goodwill, and they want it to be sort of uh, collegial in that sense, and but but sometimes I think it's important to expose that too. I was on, I I, I did three debates with this guy William Lane Craig in Australia that I really wouldn't have. I didn't want to do, and it was and was it was sponsored by a Christian large-scale Christian group, which is why I decided to do it, because I thought here's a person who's not honest. I debated him
0: as well. He he really is just a professional Christian debater, and that's that's what he does. And he, wants he does to other be. things, but th- this seems to be what he does a lot of.
1: And he and he and, he, and ex- exactly, and what he does is he tailors his notoriety to the people he debates. So he mm-hmm. wants to be at people so he can say, look, I debated X, Y, and Z and i i actually originally agreed only if they wouldn't put it online because i i just assumed that they would use it for that purpose and and then there was a then they said could we could we film it for our own archival purposes and they were very nice people it was a really nice religious group i should say this they were really earnest and they i said you've chosen the wrong person i i i told them i i think you could you could choose more honest people and we could have an interesting discussion about science and religion uh But they they did. And by the way, afterwards, I will tell you that they said to me they agreed they'd made a mistake. But what happened was uh, his people found out about the fact that things were videotaped and then said I was censoring it. I didn't want the public to know Mm -hmm. about it. So we put it all. It was just a typical kind of thing. But but uh, so I think those kind of things can be useful if you expose if you can expose certain people and not take them seriously. And the other thing, I guess the very first one of the very first big debates I did was back. And what got me into that sort of area, maybe, uh, was in the early days when they were trying to introduce intelligent design in the classroom, and the Discovery Institute was just beginning its efforts to try and do that in in 2000 or or shortly after. Mm -hmm. And so the Ohio State School Board basically asked for a debate between these two guys from the Discovery Institute and me and and Ken Miller, who you may know as a a, a Catholic, uh, a religious Catholic evolutionary biologist, whose texts are used in high schools. And, and it was like 2,000 people attended it as well as the school board. And uh, and it was really a very emotional event. But what I tried to say at that point was, this is inappropriate because the problem with debates is it always makes it, it makes it look like he said, she said. It makes it look like there are two people with equally valid views who are discussing this. And it raises the profile of people sometimes whose views are nonsense. So I, I just pointed out that if it was an appropriate panel, there'd be a hundred thousand scientists on one side of the table and two, two people from a marginal religious uh, uh, lobbying group on the other. I, I think because the journalists do this too, they always try and make it seem as if there's two sides to every story and to some extent, a debate validates that because it, it makes it appear as if both sides are, are, um, are valid. So I won't, I won't, for example, do debates that say, uh, you know, science versus creationism or, you know, because, or evolution versus creationism, because the very premise of the title suggests they're at equal footing. Mm-hmm. What I will, what I would in the old days when I did more of this, those kind of debates, I would debate the question, should creationism be taught in the class, in science classrooms? And that, that's a question that I would be, ha- I would have to debate, but not, you know, which is right, evolution or creationism, because there's no question of it. And I remember once I was doing debate in, in, uh, I think St. Louis with the what the time, the head of the intelligence intelligent design network, who, by the way, was one of those guys who earnestly believed what he was talking about. He was deluded, but he he was earnest. Yeah. And um but the day before they changed the title to Evolution versus you know, creationism, which is right or something. And I and I said I would back out of it. And the St. Louis paper had a big story about it. They changed the title back again. But I think it's really important if we're going to debate that we try very carefully to make it clear what questions are worth discussing and which questions are not even worth raising.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think there, there are a variety of problems here because it's, I mean, you, you've delineated it pretty clearly, but there, there are insincere performers where they, it's really, you can't even believe that they believe what they say they believe, but they are pushing a certain view for whatever reason. So it, that's the the ultimate case where the person you're talking to is really unreachable and you just have to decide whether it's worth trying to embarrass this person publicly yeah. for some greater effect.
1: Which always, which reflects badly on you, by the way, automatically half the audience say, what a, what a, what a prick that guy yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. You know, anyway.
0: But even when someone sincerely believes what they're espousing, it is, uh, again, the, the optics are often weird because you, you're dignifying completely unjustifiable claims just by giving them a fair hearing in that context. And what's... Even worse about debates, often, and this is, this is, this bothers me about political debates, is that the value of humor is so enormous that the the person who gets a couple of laughs often wins, right? I mean, so yeah, like yeah. that bonds the audience, and so that's yeah. and you know you and, <laughs> you and I actually occasionally get laughs, so that, that yeah. tends to work in our favor. But
1: yeah, I know, I can, I I'm, I like to make jokes, so I. I... I benefit from that. And I mean, I'd make jokes anyway, just to amuse myself, but yeah, but
0: it is unfair.
1: Yeah. It's, it certainly isn't fair. It's, it's, as I say, it's smoke and mirrors. It's rhetorical. Debates are really entertainment. Right. But you know, when I really do agree to, I would think I now, as usual, I'm, I've thought about the answer after I've said things, but, uh, uh, when I do agree to do debates now, and it's rare, it's usually because it's an audience that I don't think ever gets to hear the other side. Yeah. So, I agreed to do this debate for this Christian organization, and I did. A, I recently did a debate with um, for a Christian organization in, in Toronto with with Steve Meyer, who's another huckster from the Discovery Institute, and and you know he has a PhD, I think, in history of science or something, and and, he, and and so he has the veneer of of legitimacy, and uh, and 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 but that was a Christian group, and then as you probably know, I've debated at least twice, and one time in a very emotional way, and in in London, an Islamic. Group mm-hmm. And I did that because I, I really thought that it's no you know, d- winning a debate isn't fun if, if you're really, I mean, it, if you're talking to people who sympathize with you already, it, 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 it may be good for your ego, but it's not particularly useful. But if you can read, if you can at least raise the questions and provoke people to think, and maybe there will be two people in the audience who'd never even heard the counterpoint.
0: If I recall, the best thing about that debate was your refusal to go on stage unless they integrated the audience because they had segregated women from men in a university audience, isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't, it made a lot of, it it got a lot of attention and I didn't attend it to, but I, yeah, I went, I did this, and the group seemed earnest. People told me events that they're gonna segregate, so I wrote to them and I said, you know, I'm not gonna appear for this. They said, don't worry, they won't. And then I arrived in the auditorium and of course it was segregated. And and what, and then I went down to the the hosts and I said, you told me it wouldn't be. Uh, And they said, oh, it's not, this is just suggestions. So I went to the microphone and I said, "It's just suggestions. You can sit wherever you want." And then two young men went to move into the into the, ses- the section that was listed for women, and 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 were about to be thrown out because of it. And and then they called for me to sort of help them because the guys who were going to throw them out were pretty scary looking. And that's when that's when that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I and that's when I backed down and said, "I'm I, I'm not doing that. Uh, I, I can't." And then what happened, of course, is. Nowadays you can't do anything about someone filming it and uh someone in the audience had a camera and and it really as as my friend Steve Weinberg who's an atheist would say I was doing God's work because it turned out to have a really good purpose in the end so this person filmed it and and of course I knew while I was half hoping the debate wouldn't happen I knew they'd put too much emphasis and and, and publicity in it not to have it so they desegregated the group mm. And by the way, the people who were the most angry, and we can get to this, the people who were really upset were the were all the women in in, in their bags, and uh, and 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 there was hate. hate, And one of them spoke up afterwards. But but what the good thing that happened from it uh, in the end, uh, you know, I was sort of surprised it got all this attention in all these British newspapers. Is that the university? It shouldn't. I mean, it was a secular. It's a university that should not be allowed. And the universities uh, learned about this and, and basically said that banned that group from having events at, at, a, at a university. Hmm. And, you know, when, when this, when a woman, when one of the women came up at the end, uh, there was a question and answer period and chastised me for, for forcing her to sit near men. I, 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 I said, this is a, you shouldn't have come. I said, this is a secular environment. You could see it online. If you're, I understand if you're uncomfortable or men, that's, that's, that's your business. And I sympathize with it. And, 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 but you have to realize that you're living in a society that, that's a secular society. And, and therefore, if you choose to come to an event like this, you have to, or go to a baseball game, you might be subject to sit next to sit next to men. And moreover, if you didn't like it, you could have moved.
0: All the women in their bags. Let's hear about that on Twitter.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm making friends left, right, and center as we as we proceed. Anyway,
0: let's touch your book briefly, only to uh, move on to more controversial topics. But your book is really this great history of. The development of our understanding of the cosmos. At one point, you debunk the the great man portrayal of science. This idea that you know one lone genius goes into his room and comes out with a a change in our scientific worldview. But you can't help but tell the story in terms of the contributions of the most famous scientists and the, yeah. the, you know, how they ha- have changed our worldview. Really, in these punctate ways, there there are some cases where the the caricature is true. I mean, Newton is pretty close to that, where he went into a his room to avoid the plague for about eighteen months and came out with calculus and the laws of motion and universal gravitation and the field of optics and.
1: Well, yeah. Well, Newton is an anomaly in human history. I mean, he, as a as, he was, he would not have, he would not have survived today. I mean, he was a crazy man. Say more about that. He was. He was. He would have been hospitalized. He spent very little time on physics. Most of the time he was decoding secret messages from the Bible, Mm. which he felt were given only to him and the rest of his time doing alchemy. He was far more interested in those subjects. And I think I said the other day that, you know, if only he'd spent more time in physics, he could have been famous, (laughs) but he, but he, he was obsessively uh, solitary in many ways. He never, to, to the extent we know, he never was with a woman in his life or a man, as far as I know. And, uh, uh, he was a very a remarkably interesting character. And one of those people you know, some of my friends who are distinguished physicists. We, we point out that when you read certain people's work, like for example, Einstein, you can, who's obviously a great physicist, you can see, you can say to yourself, ah, I see how, if I was thinking along those lines, I could have gotten to where he got, mm. but there's some people like Newton that it's just a mystery. I mean, you know, it's just like, where did this come from? And he, he really was an anomaly. And and again, um one of the things I, I, I try and point out there to, to get back to the religious thing a little bit is that people often point out to me, but say they say, "Well, Newton was religious, and you know, Darwin initially was religious," and 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 my point in counterpoint to that is that of course they were because that's the only game in town at that time. The, the church was the, the national science foundation of the of the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth centuries, and and you couldn't go to university. All universities were religious, so. The fact that scientists were religious was not surprising as a product of their time, but he was much more obsessed with the secret messages of the Bible, which, 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 um, and maybe Leonardo too was. But, and he, but anyway, he was a wild and and crazy man. Also,
0: not a very nice man. He was an incredibly vindictive character.
1: Yeah, his statement about "I've only, I've only." Uh, you know, gotten, uh, where I have by, by standing on the shoulders of giants was, was a vindictive statement because his, one of his great competitors was a dwarf.
0: Yeah. A and, and, yeah. And,
1: and, yeah. And, and, uh, and of course, as you know, when later on, when he became uh, well, I don't know if it was chancellor of the Exchequer, checker, but he was head of the, of, of the treasury. He loved hanging. One of his greatest joys was hanging, uh, counterfeiters. Right. He loved, he went to everyone and he just enjoyed it. But so he was a, he was a, he was really a weird character, but, but not all, but, but you know, that's unfortunately a stereotype that some people have that you have to be a solitary genius. And it's certainly not that way. And I do try in the book to show that things are baby steps. And while I reflected in terms of the people who've had perhaps in one way or another, the biggest impact, some of it is due to the fact that these people got it wrong. They actually had a huge impact on science by, by affecting the field and moving it in, in what ultimately turned out to be the wrong direction. And and one of the reasons I, I call it the greatest story ever told because I, is it is, is, is a human story. It's a story full of twists and turns and crises and, and 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 the great thing about science is well, first that scientists are human, which is a little known fact, and that but that means that individual scientists are biased, they're prejudiced, they're pigheaded, they're they're you know they're whatever they're sexist, they what or not, they you know some of them may even be Republicans, but. The science manages to drag scientists along. The science, the process of skeptical inquiry, basing your results on empirical evidence, testing, looking at many sources, that manages manages to take people, even when they're deluded, eventually in the right direction. And there's lots of times in this story where, where you want, I hope, the reader, because I certainly felt like shaking these people and saying, you've got the right answer, it's right here, if you weren't so pig and willing to just focus on this fad at the time, uh, or, or something that interests you—it does it w- w- one or the other. Then you could have the progress could have been made much more quickly. It is a, st- a human story, and it's, it's the greatest story because it isn't driven by just human imagination. It's mm-hmm. driven by nature, and nature keeps surprising us and taking us to places we literally would never have gone. And it is a, it is this community process where sure people drive it, but the whole community is, is, is is affecting things. And sometimes the ideas come out of left field and, and it's that story that I find so, so wonderful. And of course the most important part of the title for me is the so far part because, mm-hmm. um, unlike that other supposedly greatest story ever told, which was, you know, written down by Iron peasants who didn't know the earth orbited the sun. This story changes and it gets better and tomorrow it'll be better than it is today. And it changes because we learn and that's what's so and and it's surprising. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, almost, I was going to almost pull a Richard Dawkins and read a, read a quote from the book, but I won't. Um, uh, it's just, what's, you, it seems to me you have a choice when looking at this human story you, in the universe. You either put us in the center because it makes you feel better, or you're willing to say the universe evolves it sort of independently of us. And if you do that, you, you check to see if your story's wrong, and you also are willing to be surprised. And that's, that's what makes it, to me, so interesting.
0: Yeah, well, the crucial distinction between science and almost everything else I guess you could broaden it to include rationality generally, but science is the most focused and and disciplined version of that, certainly, is that the incentives are aligned in a way where it is self-purifying. I mean, everyone is trying to prove everyone else wrong. Yeah, You're constrained by the way the world is, however it is, and... Your professional reputations even improve if you prove yourself wrong.
1: Well, and, and that's the hardest thing to do, as Feynman would say. The hardest, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And that's a lesson. I mean, there's lots of, lots of object lessons that I, I think, even though the book is really about the forefront of physics, and I think it's so fascinating, and the intellectual journey is really the greatest ones human have taken. But, but I think it has moral, or at least object lessons, not moral lessons, but object lessons for everyday life and one is that the that you have to the person you have to question the most is yourself because it, you're the easiest person to delude to delude we all want to believe
0: yeah but the crucial difference here between like say this is it's often pointed out as you said that that scientists are merely human they're biased they succumb to wishful thinking and there's even scientific fraud occasionally yeah sure but the antidote to that is always more science better science other scientists getting involved, that kind of self purifying context of, of, yeah. of scientific discourse. And you cannot say that about religion. You cannot say that about any backwater in the humanities where dogmatism is moving completely unconstrained by any truth testing. It's just that, you know, the, the kind of a faddish set of ideas that get foisted on a generation and stay there. And there is no there's no feedback mechanism. There's no testability yeah, of anything.
1: It's the feedback that's important. Cause I don't want to give the illusion. And I don't think you have, but some of the listeners may get it, that some of the scientists are better. They're no, not, No. No. but, it, but, it's, but it, it's really the fact that we are lucky enough to be able to rely on nature. That, 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 you know, if you spout nonsense long enough, y- you come up with things where nature just proves you to be, to be ridiculously wrong. And so, so it's self-correcting because you have that tool. You know, and it's been a problem to some extent in physics in the last bunch of years where when I was, I talk about what I think is actually the most, one of the most exciting periods of physics. And it's a surprise, I think, for some people that most people think the period 1905 to 1925 in the 20th century was the greatest time because relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics. But as I, I point out, the period from 1955 to 1975, which is largely unheralded now, May in the future. By historians of science be viewed as one of the most revolutionary periods of the 20th century because we went from knowing, you know, one force in nature to understanding three of the four forces and understanding the f- fundamental mathematics that was behind that. But it it occurred because of the fact that nature kept pushing people in the right direction, that that there was a lot of misconception and and, and, uh, and other things, but experiments were driving things and and one of the concerns for some of us and one of the reasons I'm labeled somewhat incorrectly as a critic of string theory mm. is that there was a period in physics of, of almost 50 years 40 years where we weren't ge- where accelerators weren't giving us information about about where where our theory should be going and as i used to like to say uh, under under sensory deprivation you begin to hallucinate and that's fine i mean i get paid to hallucinate but what used to decide what was great physics was was it right <laughs> And it still should, and it still does, but for a while, what was deciding, making the decision was, is it elegant? Is it beautiful? Yeah. is it complex? And many of us were concerned because those are the same kind of requirements in some areas of, say um, literary deconstructionism that are that are similar where where the internal complexity of the argument makes it seem as if it's somehow better and and that's a worry and 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 physics thrives as all of science does when experiment thrives and it, and when it, when it drives the, the discussion, and, and of course, we're, we're in many ways living in a golden era because we're, every time we open a new window on the universe, we, we are surprised.
0: Let's touch that topic briefly. Do you think that string theory is a, a dead end that has captured the attention of a generation of physicists, or do, are no. you still no, holding out hope for No, I don't, I don't think it. it's
1: a dead end. No, I don't—well— I don't think it's a dead end. It's a, it's it's very well string theory was very well motivated and in and where it came from. It just uh, had pretensions which haven't been met, and it hasn't been. It has not. I repeat, it has not been successful in doing what many people thought or claimed would be possible in the 1980s. That we would have a theory of quote everything, which even then was a poor name because it was a theory of very little. But but it would you know it would have been of fundamental importance to have a theory that unified quantum gravity with quantum mechanics and the other forces. But it hasn't done that, and it hasn't demonstrated that it is has any direct relevance in its original form to the real world. In fact, strings aren't even the the, dom, the this most significant thing in string theory anymore, so it's called M-theory because now mm-hmm. these things called brains are important. Now, all of that should not be argued against it in the sense that when you're doing physics at the forefront, it's difficult, it's complex, and what's most important to realize is you're often wrong. And these the people have been working on are very many very bravely trying to do the right thing they're trying to understand the theory and get it to apply to the, the real world and see if it makes predictions that are useful so it's well motivated and and but the problem is it did get an incredible amount of hype and indeed draw many people into the field when it was much more heat than light in my opinion now string theory mathematically has produced incredibly interesting bits of mathematics, which have not just been interesting to mathematicians, it has driven fields of mathematics forward mm. in profound ways, but the tools that have been developed and strengthened have been used in other areas of physics to great effect to try and solve problems that could not be solved otherwise. So it's had utility, it's not, but what it hasn't done is demonstrate that its original purpose is, is, is validated. But that's okay, because you, when you asked if I had hope, I think most, you know, most ideas are wrong. That's why, you know, anyone could do it if it wasn't that way. And so, uh, most of my ideas have been wrong and, and, you know, the nature, nature gets to choose. And so the likelihood that any proposed theory in advance is right is very small. And we, and people should recognize that, especially when they read the papers, because the newspapers try and, and be largely at the fault of universities to some extent to try to publicize work and therefore get grant funding or other things you know make every new little development sound like it's the next einstein and it's revolutionary and it's changing everything and and most of the time it's wrong and what sort of upsets me is that not only do the newspapers get hooked into basically becoming public relations outlets for 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 the universities but when it's shown to be wrong it's not discussed later on and then and then people will later on read another article with sort of a new theory that disagrees with the other one and and the sense is that science has no objective reality and that's a real problem. I, one of the things, I, there's a few things I try and talk about at length in the book, and one of them is the big misunderstanding that scientific revolutions do away with everything that went before them. And that's that's exactly mm-hmm. wrong. That's exactly wrong. What What's true today will will be true in the future. What survives the test of experiment today will have to be a part of whatever theory there is in the future. And so, you know, that people now think, well, you know, everything we think today is gonna to be proved wrong, so why should I learn science? It's, and, and that's part of this problem, which I'm sure we'll get to, which is this alternative facts? It's like, well, it's just a bunch. It's going to be proved wrong. I have my own set of facts. You have your own set of facts. And what they don't realize is that science is not a set of facts. It's a process for discovering facts. And and to and to, uh, I'll be a little self-serving, but I really I really believe what I'm about to say. That I think one of the things I, I think is important in my book that I try and do indirectly at least, and in my lectures I've been lately I've been doing it more directly, is that there's an object lesson that science. The process of science showed us that the universe we see is an illusion. It's a complete, at a fundamental scale, it's a complete illusion. And it cut through the the layers of illusion by using this scientific method. Mm. And I think that is, is an essential tool that we need in our society today to cut through the illusion that we're seeing in, in, in the political world, to cut through the nonsense and garbage. Part of the problem is we, take, we teach things like science in schools as if they're a bunch of facts that or a bunch of things you have to memorize instead of teaching them uh, teaching science as a process and driving students' inquiry with questions rather than the answers. And I, so I think there's a real if, if people ask me, how can we overcome the the alternative propaganda we're seeing in Washington? Part of it, I think, has a very deep root in our educational system. and I think I think while, of course we need to resist and combat in a very real way and speak out and write and Etc. I think we have to look at the educational system and hope that we can train children differently. Because when I was growing up, schools were repositories of information. But right now in my iPhone, I have more information than I could get in any school, but I also have more misinformation. Mm -hmm. And what we have to train students to do is to develop a filter. And for me, the scientific method is a wonderful filter. And that's the kind of thing we should be teaching them in school so that when they become adults, they're, they're able to deal with the world in which they're going to be barraged by much nonsense, or maybe more nonsense than sense, and they have to be able to make sense of that. You
0: just covered a lot there, which is really important, so so, I want to pick up on a few things you said. One problem is that some of the most memorable things to come out of the philosophy of science are misleading at best, and so people think, for instance, that, as you said, in each generation, our scientific worldview is completely overturned without remainder, and nothing thought by your father or grandfather is any longer valid. So people have this picture of just wholesale changes in our understanding, and it's easy to see how they have that. I mean, you have people like Thomas Kuhn, who have, who have more or less said that that's, what, yeah. that's how yeah. science proceeds, but you just have a the very different picture when you move from New, Newtonian physics to relativity. Say and you know, and then in quantum mechanics and the the fact that those theories are as yet imperfectly reconciled and the thing that would reconcile them may look completely different as a, a structure and so that it gives a picture of just radical change and yet as you said the data that the data that Newtonian mechanics were conserving have to be conserved by the new theory and I mean so just to take one this is an example I often go to because it's very easy for people to get. We could witness wholesale changes in our understanding of biology, say, mm-hmm. but the idea that DNA has something to do with the, the, the physical basis of heredity is not up for grabs. Whatever new theory of molecular biology is coming down the pike, it will have to conserve what we know about DNA. The probability that DNA is somehow totally irrelevant is extraordinarily low, and if in fact that were realized, whatever new construal of you know how we were wrong about DNA comes to us, it will have to conserve all of the data as we know them, right? And that's there's very little room to move now, given how much data there is.
1: Exactly. The point is that. That our underlying pictures change tremendously, but that so when we subsume a theory, you know, our underlying understanding of the universe does change, which is great. It's one of the things I celebrate in the book, and one of the things we all celebrate as scientists that we that our that that our pictures change, and that's why I think, by the way, science is like art, music, and literature. The greatest benefit of science is to is to force us to reflect upon and potentially change our view of our place in the cosmos. But as you say, DNA. You know, DNA, what survived the test of experiment, it works. You can do experiments and you can show that it it, it it is responsible for the transmission of information. And 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 Newton's laws, a million years from now, when I have a theory, if there's a theory of quantum gravity, if I let go of a baseball, it's going to fall. It's going to be described by Newton's laws. Whatever we learn at the edges of science, which may, at a fundamental level, change how we think about the universe, nevertheless doesn't make Newton not true. Newton is will be true. And now and a million years from now, and one of the great uh, what I spent a lot of time in the book showing is because I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of email from people, and and most of it, it always begins this way: everything you think you know is wrong. Half of that refers to my politics, the other half to my science, and and then they say, you know, uh, I, everyone thinks I'm crazy, but everyone thought Einstein was crazy, therefore, and they try and make that connection, because they think Einstein did that, and one of the things I work really hard to do in the book, is to show that Einstein did exactly the opposite. Yes, he revolutionized our understanding, ultimately of space and time, although the really key revolution didn't really come from him. It later on came from his math teacher, Hermann Minkowski, but what he did do was show the two pillars of physics, both of which had survived the test of experiment, and therefore both had to be true. They couldn't, you couldn't have a theory that violated. One came from Galileo, and one came from Maxwell, they, they were the pillars of our modern theory of, of the physical universe, but they were inconsistent with each other. And what did he mm-hmm. do? He didn't throw one or the other out. He, he managed to make them consistent because he realized they were, they were both true. So whatever theory of nature you developed had to agree with both of them. And that was the, that was the brilliance of Einstein, was not to throw things out, but to rather recognize the beauty of what, was, of what worked. And keep that, and and force his his beliefs to conform to the evidence of reality.
0: There's another point of confusion that often surrounds Einstein's work, which is this phrase: "Everything is relative." Yeah, right. Which is which derives <laughs> from the word relativity.
1: Well, it should be it should be called the theory of absolutes in the end. And it was really, as I say, it was his his math teacher Herman Minkowski that showed that it is true that Einstein re- reconciled these two things by saying that in fact observers measure different things and they measure different time differently and length differently depending upon the relative state relative state of motion and that's remarkable and true and that's where the word you know relativity comes from the fact that your measurements of time and space are, are relative to your circumstances but the beauty of the theory is an underlying theory showing that we live in a four-dimensional universe in which space and time are connected and in the underlying theory there, there are things that are absolutely conserved. in fact There's something called a four-dimensional space-time length, which is invariant for all observers. That's the beautiful aspect of nature. We now understand that we live in a four-dimensional universe, but we don't see it. We see three-dimensional slices. It's part of of the story of learning that the universe at its fundamental scale does not resemble what we see. What we see is a myopic slice of that. So in some Mm -hmm. sense, the relativity is related to our myopia. Now, it's a real fact that we have a myopic, that our Well, it's a real fact that every measurement we make about the universe depends upon our circumstances. And Einstein was brilliant enough to realize that, that measurement is what determines reality for people. It's not what they think, but what they measure. And therefore, if two people measure different things, they're just as real for even if those two things are different. But the underlying reality shows that those two very different things are different sides of the same coin. And that's the other, in my mind, a much greater hallmark of of progress in science than what Kuhn might've talked about. The real great hallmark of progress in science is when two things which on the surface seem very different are shown to be different reflections of exactly the same thing. Hmm. And, and that, at least in physics, and it may not be so much in biology, although in, you know that's what Darwin did too, in a sense. So he showed that the diversity of life came from simple beginnings and in a very well-defined way. But But it's the beautiful aspect of that discovering that these things that look very different are really the same that is the hallmark that i try and talk about from from maxwell through einstein and then feynman and then right to the discovery of the higgs particle there's a there's a there's a beautiful continuity that you can ask when it, when has progress been made and pretty well universally that's a, an indicator of it in my mind in physics
0: there is a tension however between a merely operational view of scientific theory and a realistic picture of the way the world is. So, one thing that I think people find troubling is that it's easy to talk about these different ways of describing reality Newtonian, relativistic, quantum mechanical. And if they all have their utility, you know, at certain speeds, at certain yeah. scales, but they all suggest a very different picture of what's actually going on. And like in quantum mechanics, you have the many worlds view you have the copenhagen view you have you have other views which suggest a a radically different picture of what's going on and yet you're using the same equations to make the same predictions and account for the same measurements i mean there's a yearning and i think this yearning must be shared by most physicists to get past the merely useful merely instrumental merely yes we we have made a measurement to what does reality actually look like doesn't it matter to you whether the truth is that there are a functionally infinite number of copies of ourselves having more or less identical conversations in parallel universes, or something that doesn't entail that at all, which conserves the data in the same way?
1: Well, you know, it, that's a really good question. I think, I think a lot of it comes from, the, uh, in my opinion, a misunderstanding of scientific truth. There is no—science doesn't—science at proves absolutely what's false. It doesn't prove absolutely what's true. Science presents models of reality, and those models get better. While we tend to often equate the model with reality, it's dangerous to do that because because there's no scientific theory. And one thing string theory wanted to do was be different in this sense. But it's really important to point this out. There is no scientific theory that's absolutely true. Our best theory of nature right now is something called quantum electrodynamics. It gives, it allows you to compare predictions to observations to 14 decimal places. There's nowhere else in, in all of science you can do that. But that theory only applies over some small scale, not that small, but a, some limited scale of, uh, of, of length and time in nature. And it breaks down and it has to be replaced by another theory, mm. the electroweak theory, which is it, it unifies electromagnetism with this weak interaction. And so, we have to realize that 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 mathematics may be the language of nature, but it's a great way to model nature, and it works. That's why we use it. I mean, that's ultimately the result. Is the reason mathematics we use mathematics is not that we necessarily have not uh, you know, we like it more than English, but it works, and English doesn't. But there are certain areas where we have to recognize that that model takes us beyond, well beyond the things we can intuitively understand. And in those cases, we all create pictures for ourselves because we use them to guide us. And sometimes our intuition's better than others, and, you know, that's happened with scientists too. Um, But things like quantum mechanics, for example, all of these different quote-unquote interpretations, in my mind, suffer from the fact that what they're trying to do is explain a universe that at its fundamental scale is quantum mechanical in terms of a universe that we experience, which is classical. And any classical interpretation of quantum mechanics is going to be incorrect at some level. It's going to, as my late friend, Sidney Coleman, who was a brilliant physicist at Harvard, used to say, we shouldn't be talking about the interpretation of quantum mechanics. We should talk about the interpretation of classical mechanics. Because the quantum mechanics is the way the world works, as far as we can tell. Now, we may be wrong at some scale. Maybe quantum mechanics may break down, but no one's seen any place that that happens. And so the world really is quantum mechanical, and classical mechanics arises in some sense as this illusion once again. And to try and impose this illusion on the fundamental world the way it may work is to always produce descriptions that 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 seem crazy at some sense and are limited at some sense. and And that's true uh, not just for quantum mechanics, but that's, as I say, that's the reason we always have these myopic views. So I'm worried, of course, what, what I want to do is get a better picture of how nature works. But do I want to? But do I ever have the expectation that I'll have a complete understanding of how nature works? Not at this point. Nor do I need. It, nor do I need it.
0: It's not so much the dissatisfaction that comes with incompleteness. I guess it's the dissatisfaction that comes with two equally valid, in the sense that they conserve the data, pictures that are totally irreconcilable. They're not irreconcilable in terms of measurements, because the measurements are the same, and they're not irreconcilable in terms of the math, because the math is the same. But the picture you can get from... So to take one example that you, you actually do at least act like you have a dog in this particular fight, okay. the, the, the measurement problem, right? So, so people have traditionally made much of the fact in quantum mechanics that a measurement is what collapses the wave function and constrains reality, and and a measurement is poorly defined in science, and a measurement has traditionally been taken to entail the conscious attention of a sentient being like a physicist. So you have people, and you you, you name him, this is someone I've debated, Deepak Chopra, (laughs) running around saying that science has proven that your consciousness is, at this moment, in collaboration perpetually with the universe to define its character at the most basic level. And you can find physicists who have PhDs who will stand up and just sign off on his, on his well, physics.
1: That, well, that, having a PhD doesn't mean anything. You can find people with PhDs who say the Earth is flat. People should realize that. That's really important, that you can always find a scientist to validate any idea. And by a scientist, I mean someone with a PhD. To validate any idea, how, regardless of how crazy,
0: I totally take that point. But just to defend Chopra a little bit, which I'm yeah. not in the habit of doing, if you roll back the clock just a little bit and you go to the patriarchs of the discipline, people like Niels Bohr, yeah, he said many things that were in line. I mean, the, Co- the Ho- Copenhagen interpretation originates there, right? There, there was a lot of mysticism creeping into physics at the first part. There is. The there has of...
1: been. And and that once again, one needs to dissociate physicists from physics in a sense that. One of the things I also object to, and not in your case, but often when I'm debating uh, theologians to some extent and sometimes philosophers, or, or and I'm having discussions, is they quote authority. They say, "But look, Niels Bohr said this," and and but the point is, Neil and Einstein said this, but the point is, Einstein was wrong. <laughs> it's, it's fine that he said it, and he was a great physicist. But you know, people can be wrong, and I think the, the things that uh, you said a key point that these two views that are utterly irreconcilable and utterly different. Um, you know, both seem to apply. Doesn't that bother me? Well, the point is, again, to use my Einstein example, is if they seem utterly irreconcilable, it's more likely, in my opinion, a product of our limited imagination and understanding. And if we had a better understanding, then those two seemingly irreconcilable pictures, which both seem to work, would be seen as not Irreconcilable, but you're absolutely right that well, I mean, Deepak, who I like to make fun of, although I think he's actually a very pleasant fellow um, when you talk to him. He's
0: not always that pleasant.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe not, but but um, he certainly wants to be liked. He wants to be respected, which amazes me. And I do, I often say to him, just stop saying what you're saying; it'll be a lot easier. But but
0: and take off the rhinestone glasses.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe that. Okay. Oh, well, I, I'm I'm not going to make a fashion statement. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure people can make fun of what I wear. But what it is is people who misuse. Quantum mechanics Quantum mechanics is the most misused part of science because it seems the most mystical and it seems to offer for people an out to everything they want in life. The, the new age hopes and dreams that people have that somehow are, they find are disappointing about the real universe. And this notion that consciousness plays a key role. I mean, the best counterexample is, is, is one at which I got from, a, I think, a friend of mine, Frank Wilczek, a physicist, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, as it turns out. If consciousness mattered in quantum mechanics, if it really was relevant in measurement, then whenever you read a scientific paper, you'd have to, the, 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 the writer would have to say what they, what they were thinking about that time. Were they thinking about sex? I mean, we'd have to, integrally in every part of every scientific measurement paper, you'd have to have a discussion of what the conscious thoughts of the person doing the measurements were. And of course, it never enters into it at all. Consciousness and quantum mechanics are a uh, consciousness is something, I mean, it's more your area than mine, but in my opinion, it, it's something, the reason I do physics is because it's so much easier. It, consciousness is so much more difficult. We don't have, uh, I don't know of good definition of consciousness. It's a, obviously a fascinating area and something we're trying to learn about. One of the reasons you and I were probably at the AI meeting is that maybe we'll learn from AI what consciousness is, but it's something that's ill-defined and certainly something that plays no role at this point in physics, because physics is, is just so much more pedestrian.
0: So then what is an observation from the point of view of one who is collapsing the wave function in quantum mechanical sense?
1: Well, it's, it's. I mean, you can call it collapse of the wave function. An observation, if you wish, is something that just, uh, whatever I'm going to say is going to be either jargon-filled or, or limited, because, of course, the the English can't correctly capture all, all of the all of the mathematics, but it is something that destroys what we would call coherence. It's something so that, that the weird thing about the quantum mechanical world is that many things are happening at the same time. Many contradictory things are happening at the same time. Things which shouldn't be possible are happening at the same time. Particles are spinning in many different directions at the same time. And the actual state of the particle is what we call a coherent mathematical superposition of all of the different possible states that the particle could have.
0: Actually, Lawrence, I think we may be assuming too much of our listeners in terms of being aware of, of this particular experimental result. So I, I guess the best way to frame this is to talk about what is seemingly spooky about something like the double-slit experiment, like that yeah. matter can behave differently when it's constrained, when you have information yeah. about how, how it should be behaving.
1: A good point. And I spend, that's why I spent a fair amount of time in the double slit experiment, which was, you know, at first propo- developed by Thomas Young. I mean, what, some of these guys are amazing. You kind of wish you lived in a different era because they, Thomas Young helped decipher the Rosetta Stone. He was a doctor. He developed the, the concept of energy. I mean, these people just seem to do so much and maybe- gentleman science. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was low hanging fruit. It was an easier time, one hopes, but they certainly seem to do so much more than we do now. Uh, but- but the double slit experiment is something I spent a lot of time in the book about because it demonstrates most explicitly the nonsensical, the seemingly nonsensical nature of of quantum mechanics. That So that a wave, if I said a, a wave, and many kids have done this in high school, you put a wave uh, moving with these wave fronts that are parallel, and you have it go through two slits, you get this what's called an interference pattern. And it's the reason why uh, concert halls have lots of things jutting out and and otherwise because in this interference pattern there's regions where say if the wave was a sound wave there'd be lots of sound and there are regions where there'd be no sound and if you didn't have a a well-designed concert hall there'd be tickets seats that you wouldn't want to pay for because you couldn't hear and so there's this interference pattern and it's very different if i if i took a machine gun at a towards a and, and was shooting at a wall but first shooting through a screen that had two slits clearly behind each of the two slits there'd be lots of holes in the wall where the bullets hit but if i sent waves through there in fact, there'd be, there'd be lots of different places where, where, in this case, let's say, where the wall would light up when a wave hit it. There'd be a whole series of, of, of regions where, not just the two places behind the slit, where the wall would be excited. I just
0: want to see if I can make that a little more explicit. So, so you're, you're picturing a wall with two openings in it, two slits. And if you have a wave of anything, water, light, anything, when it hits that wall and, and encounters those slits, the, most of the wave is blocked, but then at each slit, you have an individual wave propagating beyond that, like two circular waves coming out of these two slits, which when those waves meet on the other side of the barrier, they will, they will interact in a way where, where, where their peaks align, they, they'll be higher, where their troughs and peaks cancel one another, they'll fall off, and you'll get a different pattern.
1: It's a beautiful pattern to right. see. And if you've ever been at a, a seashore near, you know, where, near boats where there's you can see that and you can see the beautiful wave like patterns where there's regular patterns of ridges of regions where the waves are, are high and where the water is calm, and it's really a very pretty pattern. And it's it, it's called an interference pattern. And okay, so that's a big deal, fine, but but that's true of light,
0: or uh, let's stick to light because the light equalizes both sides of this experiment,
1: yeah. okay? Because light, we light we know is a wave. So light behaves that way and it's one of the many what was one of the experiments that Thomas Young did to argue that light was a wave in fact. There were other experiments too, but but the, because you when you put light through these slits, the slits have to be very small because the wavelength of visible light is very small and in order for this phenomenon to be observed, the slits have to be sort of comparable in size to the wavelength of light. But then you see these wonderful, you know, interference patterns. But the problem is light is made of particles also in quantum mechanics. And we can we can make a source so weak that when it emits light, it actually emits a single particle, what we call a photon. Okay. And we can do that now. And so now the question is, okay, but if photon is like a particle, then when I shoot it towards that, those two slits, then the pattern that appears should be like shooting bullets, right? Because the photon will go through one slit or the other. If it goes through one slit, you know, behind that slit, you'll see a light, a light stripe or an, goes through the other set behind it, you'll see a light stripe. But that's not the pattern you see. You see an interference pattern. And you see an interference pattern even if you send one photon through at a time. And what that means is, the only way you can understand that in the picture, if you think about, you know, classical world, is that the photon is going through both slits at the same time and interfering with itself. As a wave. So it's doing yeah. As a wave. It's, it is literally doing two things at the same time. It's going through both slits now you can ask, you can say to yourself, that's crazy. I can prove that's not happening because I can, I can attach a photon detector at my slits and my photon detector will click if the photon goes through one slit or another. And you say, okay, I'll do that experiment. And then you'll see that indeed, only one detector will click at each time. The photon will go through one slit or the other and you'll say, aha, see? But then you'll look back and you'll see the pattern is different than it was before. It's now a pattern like bullets. So by the very act of measuring and and fixing the which slit the photon goes through in a measurement way you change the pattern
0: you're changing the the physical behavior of light by simply seeking certain information about the path the photon took through the apparatus
1: and that and and that seeking that information is what you would might call a measurement yeah but but in particular and that's why we use the word decoherence it's a it's a bit of jargon but in some sense To understand what the photon is doing before you do the measurement, or if you don't do the measurement, you have to assume that many different things are happening at the same time, and at the wall, the end result is is the product of all of those things having happened at the same time. So it's what we call a coherent superposition. In the language of Richard Feynman, That's what we call the many-paths interpretation of of quantum mechanics. The, The photon is taking many different trajectories, and in the end, to figure out what happened, you have to account for all the different trajectories. But if you end that coherence namely by making some measurement that definitely tells you the photon was here between A and B obviously all those other trajectories are now not are now ruled out and the end product of what you see is different so a measurement effectively involves what we call decoherence it involves forcing the system to not be a coherent superposition of many different possibilities but but really being in only one of those possibilities, that's why the classical world makes sense because when we look at a ball or, or a clock or anything, it's always in a specific configuration. So it seems so crazy for us to think that at a fundamental level, things are doing many different things at the same time. It seems absolutely insane. And it is because as, as Richard Dawkins would emphasize, we, what m- makes com- sense to us is what you know, was useful to us in the Savannah, to escape lions, and, and it wasn't to learn how to do quantum mechanics. And, and so it's not surprising, in some sense, it's supr- surprising that as much of the world is comprehensible as it is. It's not surprising that at a fundamental level, the world is strange and seemingly mysterious and defies common sense, because why should, why should it validate our common sense when we're human beings who live at a certain scale and the universe is so much richer? And, and it's, again, I repeat, I think this is a characteristic of science that it shares with, in some sense, the best social science, but also with the humanities. When you have a myopic view of what you, how you think people should behave, and then you go see a play and, and, and it get illuminated, you know, homosexuality say illuminated in a new way, it opens your horizon. You realize that, that what you thought was normal and natural is maybe not normal and natural. Similarly, when anthropologists, uh, have gone into different societies and they say, you know, what we think is absolutely normal about what's 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 proper and appropriate and polite in that other society is viewed to be uh, the exact opposite. It opens our mind to realize that our our myopic conditions are just that. And the beauty of science is to get us beyond our myopia. I, I, I think I said in the book, and I, I do believe, and I once regretted saying it, that the purpose of science, one of the purposes of science, is to make us uncomfortable. Mm. Because if we're always comfortable, then we're never outside our comfort zone. We're never learning anything. But I do think that, again, is one of the purposes of great art, music, literature, and all of human intellectual inquiry at its best, which is all, in my mind, part of The Greatest Story.
0: I share those intuitions about the the limits of our intuition and, and the fact that we shouldn't be surprised when our intuitions are violated when we Explore any of these regions that are, in principle, beyond the space where our intuitions were tuned up by evolution. As he, back to Dawkins's point, we have not been constrained by reality in terms of our successful breeding and propagating ourselves over the generations, by our ability to understand what's happening in, in, in the center of atoms or at the back of stars or you know anywhere else where physics attempts to take us, but. The double-slit experiment is squirrelier than that.
1: Okay, tell me how.
0: It's not just that the knowledge we're getting is counterintuitive. It's the fact that you're getting knowledge changes what the physical world is doing.
1: Well, well, it's not getting knowledge. Uh, in I this mean, case, uh, measurement. Well, yeah, but we're getting the measurement effect. The person doesn't have to be there. You can have the double-slit experiment working with a Geiger counter or whatever you want and come back after the fact and, and look at the data. The, the actual apparatus isn't getting the knowledge it's, it. What the apparatus is doing is interacting with the light. And that's the key point. It's not just some abstract way of thinking about it or imagining it somehow changes it. You actually have to interact with it. That's why these people like Deepak and other people who somehow say quantum mechanics tells us that thinking about the world changes it. It doesn't. You have to interact with the world to change it. And this measurement apparatus interacts with the light. It's not just, it's if you, there are way, there are really fancy ways in quantum mechanics of actually manipulating light without, without interacting with it, and that's what sort of quantum mm-hmm. computers are kind of based on. But if you want to get what you, what you say is knowledge, it means you have to have an interaction. You have to do something rather drastic and rather, rather violent. But
0: you're not interacting with it in such a way that your interaction is what seems to explain the change in its behavior.
1: Well, no, I don't, maybe, I mean, you'll probably get letters from some philosophers of quantum mechanics who might disagree, but no, I think it's the, it's a central part. That interaction is a central part. It's what defines what a measurement is. And that's why, that's why the measurement concept is in some sense, um, difficult to quantify because you can, you know, there's certain gentle ways of interacting and, and they don't measure. (laughs) And, 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 and so it really is, it really is the process of interacting of 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 physically changing it that produces a change. It's not something subtle. I, I that's very important.
0: To flip this around, that, that's not the case with something like the uncertainty principle, right? Because the uncertainty principle is sometimes described as this is Heisenberg's uncertainty yeah. principle. You can't know the position and momentum of a particle at the same time or, or perfectly yeah. at the same time. The more you know about position, the less you know about momentum. Yeah. This is often described as a consequence of the fact that you have to interfere with the particle in order well, to know any of those things.
1: Y- yeah. Well, now that that's a good point. And that's and not Heisenberg. The case. It's not the case. And I, I don't know if Heisenberg was the first person to use that example. That indeed you can you can give pictorial examples to try and understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle by saying that you know if you want to measure something carefully, you have to use light of a very small wavelength. But light of a very small wavelength has a very high energy, so when it interacts, it'll change the energy or momentum of the system. And so it's kind of a nice heuristic argument, but you're right, it doesn't completely characterize it. It doesn't involve measurement. It's an inherent property of the system that there are there are certain quantities that do not take precise values at the same time. And and that's I tried to get out of the word measurement. Right. That do not do not occupy even in the quantum mechanical world. Precise values at the same time.
0: So, just to be clear about why I even brought that up, uh, I, th- I know you're clear about it. But again, these are <laughs> these are these are high issues, and we are audio only, so we we have to keep our listeners along with us.
1: Your listeners should know I'm waving my hands yeah. at every instance. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, so, with the uncertainty principle. It's not a ma- matter that your looking requires that you, you meddle in such a way that you physically contaminate the system. It is a fundamental, intrinsic property of the physical systems that—
1: It is an essential property, and I use it.
0: There's uncertainty about—the more you know about momentum, the less you know about position.
1: Well, what I'm, it's not—again, I, I don't like using the word no. It's a, it, it's a property that a system can be prepared in a, in a state of specific momentum— but if it is, then that quantum mechanically, but if it is, then its position will be spread out right. and, or, or a system can be prepared in a specific position state where its position is well-defined. But if it is, its momentum will be spread out and I actually try in the book to give some, to, I do some graphs that I actually try, I think give a pretty good sort of heuristic understanding of where that comes from. But it's an essential part of actually the, one of the neatest parts of the modern world of physics and and essential part of the story that I tell, because what I often say now is that, is that quantum mechanics is, 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 is like Washington or corporate America, which in this case are the same thing now, Th- that if you can't see it, anything goes. That, because what the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle says is, if I measure a system for a sh- short enough time, then the energy of that system is uncertain. It means there's a v- that, that mm-hmm. it's not well-defined, and that means there may be not just one particle in there, There may be many particles, and that's why empty space is actually a boiling, bubbling brew of these what we call virtual particles. It's like embezzlement. I was just saying this last night. If a particle pops out of empty space, it has energy. Where did that energy come from? Well, it, it violates energy conservation for it to be there, but if it violates energy conservation by an amount smaller than you can measure, it's fine. So it's like embezzlement. It's like taking money out. As long as you get rid of it before anyone notices you've taken it out, it's fine and that's the way nature is at the smallest scales particles are popping in and out of existence violating what you might think is energy conservation but because they exist for such a short time there's no physical way that they can violate energy conservation and that by the way and we will probably won't get to it in this in this podcast is why it turns out electromagnetism works across the universe and the weak force doesn't because the photon is massless and it can carry an mm. arbitrarily small amount of energy so it can go from here to alpha centauri without without violate, being measure, measurably violating energy conservation, and that's why these, quote-unquote, virtual particles, which is the way we think of electromagnetism now, by the exchange of these, quote-unquote, virtual particles that would otherwise violate energy conservation, they can go right across the universe because they carry so little energy. It's an essential part of the way we understand right, nature right. and the fundamental forces.
0: But my question is, why not, in the case of the double-slit experiment, say something more like that, which is, it's not that by performing a measurement, you are meddling with the light in such a way that you're changing the physical character of the system. It's just, it is, a, it is an intrinsic property of, of the behavior of light, which is, if it is informationally constrained in such a way that it could be known what path it took, it behaves like a particle rather than a wave. And that, that doesn't entail consciousness.
1: Neither in- entail consciousness, but I, I, I tried to be precise as much as I can in this regard. And I think the word I use was if you prepare a state in a state of definite momentum, Mm. then it's position will be spread out. If you prepare a state in in a a particle or a system in where, you know, it, where it's, it's position is well-defined, then it's momentum is spread out. The same is true. You see what happens is when the wave comes in, it's in a state where if you wish it's prepared where, where it's position is spread out. So it's in a, in a quantum mechanical state where its position isn't well-defined. Right. But then when I f- do a measurement on it, I change it into a state, into a different quantum mechanical state, if you wish, where its position is well-defined. So so what I'm doing is changing the state the system is prepared in. And if I change the state the system is prepared in, it's not too surprising, perhaps, that you get different different effects.
0: Can you delay the measurement in such a way that you can set the the system up so that you could make a measurement after the fact if you wanted to, but you need not.
1: Yeah, well, that's what we do when we, when, when we, when in some sense, you know, yeah, that's having the Geiger counter there but not turning it on or, or whatever. But when you do that, you see the system as it was prepared in the initial state. Right. You haven't changed it. What I'm, what I guess the point I'm trying to say to you is that you really, you know, there's a fundamental difference between just the statement of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which you're right does not involve measurement at all, and the statement that measuring a particle produces a different effect because measuring a particle changes the quantum mechanical state of the system. And it, it changes it in a, very, in a way which, if you wish, is exactly in accord with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle because the original wave, a plane wave, is the perfect example of a quantum mechanical system that's a, defined to be in a the definite state of momentum, mm. which means it's spread out in space. But when I make a measurement, I change that. You've
0: gone after location. Yeah.
1: I I, I've changed it to a system where I've specified its location, and then in some sense, its its momentum is 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 uncertain. So I've actually I have to make that physical change, and it is true that that physical change may be observed and interpreted by us, but but there's some there's some physical system that's interfering with the with that's changing the quantum mechanical state of the system, and I and I don't know any any counterexample to that? I think measurement is a violent act, and it's a violent act in quantum mechanics. It's a violent act. Well, it doesn't always have to be a violent act. That's what's wonderful, because for example, if the system was already in a state where its position was well well defined, and I measure its position, I haven't changed anything. Mm. So it can be that measurement doesn't change the system at all. But that just depends on what the initial state of the system was, and and so. Uh, it's what in the mathematics it's called an eigenstate, but it doesn't really matter. But so you could be lucky and make a measurement and not change the system, but but to argue that measurement um, that that measurement is not does not involve physically impacting and that and, and and that somehow this this measurement problem is aside from the issue of physically interacting with the system, I I, I think that's incorrect.
0: Well, you know, I guess my question is: Is it possible to set up this experiment where you could seek the information after the fact, you know, even years after the the fact, right? And if if you don't seek it, it behaves as a wave. If you do seek it, it behaves as a particle. Has is that? Is anything like that?
1: Well, there are delayed. There are these. There, there are very sophisticated quantum mechanical experiments called delayed choice experiments, and 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 they're very they're very confusing, uh, to talk about in language again, and and to interpret properly. The bottom line is that. I think it's um, how can I say this in a way which is which is accurate and both clear, which is not so not so easy in this case. That your choice alone is not the powerful thing; it's the implementation of your choice that 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 determines the ultimate state of the system. And the implementation implementation of your choice requires some requires you to to have some physical interaction with the system at some level. And and there's no way to there's no way to change a quantum mechanical state without physically interacting with it. Mm. I stand by what I said. So it's so there are these delayed choice experiments which make it sound like you're 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 determining what the, how the system behaves by just having thought about it later, or afterwards. And those things, those things contribute to what I think is a confusion and allows people like Deepak and others, who are in fact I think worse than Deepak, people are like write the secret, who who argue that this. That somehow quantum mechanics validates their ridiculous notions about about uh, that allow you to become successful by changing reality by thinking about it, and they get a lot of money from people, and those are hucksters,
0: yeah, yeah, well, I will rely on you to send me an email if I ever have to apologize to Deepak okay, so just <laughs> just let me, let me know if I owe him an apology at any point.
1: <laughs> well, okay, I mean you know <laughs>
0: if something, something happens in your in a uh, physics journal that I'm not going to notice, let me know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I will. And 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 these. And I should say. I mean, your questions are important ones because they're because the the way of interpreting quantum mechanics. That's why there are philosophers who spend so much time in quantum mechanics because the ways of interpreting the results of the experiment lead to force us to to reassess what we think is real, quote unquote, real. And and I and maybe we have too much of a, a reliance on what we think is is real because as as I once again say, even science just presents a model of the world and. And the way it works is like Sherlock Holmes would say, which is to get rid of the stuff that's clearly wrong and what still survives clearly has some semblance of reality. Right. But, to, but to claim that it is reality, I think is something that, I, I mean, while, while colloquially we might say it, but if scientists really think about what they're saying, I don't think they would claim that.
0: So I want to get back to terrestrial reality.
1: Oh yeah, boy, that was really
0: of consequence. So we should leave that there. I mean, it's yeah. I, I guess just one additional point to make that cancels the people's interest in things like the secret, which is clearly consciousness is not defining reality at that kind of macro scale. I mean, if, if everything had to be observed by an outside observer to be real at the scale of at which we're having this conversation, well then you know I. I would require someone else to come in this room and look at me now in order to collapse my wave function to make me well, real, right?
1: I, I argue to keep back, a, to me, a more fundamental thing. We are made, as I've often said, every atom in our body came from stars that exploded, and, 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 and we, we have them to thank for being here. And, and But the stars, the atoms, the, the heavy nuclei that were created in stars stars were, were created well before the Earth formed. and before there was any life on earth and those and 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 so all those physical processes had to happen for us to be here and and there and unless of course you may argue there were other consciousnesses in the universe but let's ignore that there was certainly no need for consciousness to be there and we and there was no human animal prokaryote or eukaryote consciousness on earth because earth wasn't even there when all the particles in our body were assembled and made in the form that allowed us allows us to live
0: yeah, except from Deepak's side, you're, you're begging the question, he's going to put consciousness at the beginning of all that, observing that whole process as an intrinsic yeah, of course, property of, course, of reality. Yeah,
1: I, I will. And, yeah. And, and what I say is he, he's entitled to do it, but it doesn't have—and but, but what, what, it's fine for him to say that. What's not good for him to say is that physics validates that view. So it's all right to say, I mean, that's what a religious view is, right? That there's some consciousness at the, at the beginning of time that somehow determined why the, that's the deistic view, this sort of kindler, gentler religion that somehow consciousness Im- impacted upon the creation of the universe. And, and, and neither you nor I could disprove that, although there's no evidence of it, but it's what, what isn't correct to say is that ph- physics validates that notion.
0: So. Again, now slamming into terrestrial reality hard, okay. physics validates the notion that there's an incredible amount of energy inside the atom that can be unleashed through yes. with the appropriate detonations. And uh, as you said at the beginning, you are on the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which adjusts the doomsday clock every few years. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it is closer now to midnight than it has been at any point except one. I think, I think it was like 1953 that we had a yeah. worse moment, but now is the second worst. Just say a little about what goes into that conversation that gets the, the, the minute hand to move. And are, is it just the prospect of global nuclear catastrophe, or is it, is it every other existential threat that we are talking about at any current period?
1: Well, it, it is now. I mean, it's as you can imagine, it's a difficult and to some extent, obviously, subjective conversation it, we have, and it's amazing we come to consensus every year. I've been chairman of the board of sponsors of Bolton for maybe 10 years, and and but what has changed when it was created, and Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer created it to alert the public to the dangers of nuclear war, and the Doomsday Clock is a beautiful graphic that for one day, a year at least, when we said it, gets a lot of attention and causes people to think about an existential threat, which is nuclear war, which for most of the time people ignore. They really do. Yeah. We become complacent. But what we decided um, certainly to do consciously, maybe a decade ago, when I, around the time I became chair, was to recognize that there are other potential existential threats that need to be considered if we're seriously thinking about human civilization. They're not in the same scale as nuclear war in the same way. One of them is climate change. Hmm. Climate change isn't gonna, isn't likely to wipe out all of humanity in an instant as nuclear war certainly could. But what climate change is capable of doing is changing what we mean by modern civilization on the planet, globally, um, and producing global sociopolitical disruption in a a way that, that will change what we mean by civilization, perhaps, okay, maybe. So and it's a and it's also the, the other threats, by the way, are that we look at are not there's also the threat that an asteroid could, could hit the earth. But those we're looking at the, the the human made, I was gonna say man made, but the human made threats. So the ones mm. that come from technology. Right. So so climate change is one that we've incorporated and, and another which we've started to incorporate and this year for the first time when I when we announced it, as I pointed out, it's the first time that it actually in our minds had an impact on the actual value of the clock is another emerging technology, which is artificial intelligence and particularly cyber, the cyber world. Because of course that also presents a potential existential threat. As some people are, you know, like some people publicly say they think it's the biggest, you know, biggest one. I'm not necessarily in that, in that mode, but, but there's no doubt that the development of art of, of, of intelligent machines will change the way we live and in my mind it could go in many different directions good as well as bad but but what we pointed out is that it affected our decision in this case because of the way in which cyber warfare and hacking was potentially undermining confidence in democracy mm-hmm. and that uh, to the extent that democracy is a central part of what we view in, uh, as, as a key part of modern civilization at least in the west was therefore important and we viewed the fact that that there was a, a, a loss of confidence in the, in the democratic process during this election as one of the factors that concerned us. Um, the other factors were, were specifically, and let, let me step back and say, you, you pointed out, as I actually, I think I did when we introduced it, that this is the closest to midnight it's been in 65 years or something. Well, that's a true statement. But to be fair, I think it's more important to realize that the absolute value of the clock at any time is less important than the derivative, the direction it's going. Mm-hmm. Because the direction it's going is the message you're trying to tell people. And what we said is that the direction is going closer to midnight. We only moved to 30 seconds because we said one of the reasons that we're moving it is that the president of the United States is making statements about nuclear weapons that are outrageous and terrifying. The incumbent president, at that time he wasn't yet president, but an individual who was about to be president of the United States was making statements which were extremely dangerous. At the same time, he's not the only person, Putin was making state saber-rattling statements that were also dangerous. Mm. There were other factors like North Korea as well. And one of the reasons we moved in only 30 seconds was we try not to respond to individual events In we try to look at the global picture. And one of the things we said is, look, this person is not yet in office. There are statements that have been made and about both nuclear weapons and the other thing was climate change. We said, look, the governing party in what is, potentially arguably the, the strongest or whatever, how you want to say it, country in the world, the governing party denies science. Yeah. And so that was a great concern, but it, those were words. And we said, actions speak louder than words, but words matter, especially when they come from a person who's about to be president. And we said, we are concerned by those words because they, they could be harbingers of actions. And what we really said, and what I really, and this comes back to almost takes us full circle with, which is that what we think we really want to tell the public is that they are the, if, if they're concerned about their future, they have to take their future into their own hands that namely that governments and and not just our government, other, other governments are, are, are not going to deal with nuclear weapons or climate change. If people don't protest, if people don't raise their voices and demonstrate their concern, because even in our, democracy which right now is looks pretty fragile it is still true that people even if they may not care about what's good or bad for the country they still care about being reelected.
0: Mm.
1: and if the public and there have been times in our history when they having to do with nuclear weapons and also racism and vietnam and other if the public demonstrates that they're not that they won't tolerate it anymore then it'll have an effect and so the net thing we were saying is the world is getting more dangerous in part because the leaders of the world are not are not caretaking as they should and they're being negligent and and we want the public needs to first understand the problems which is so it's education once again and then needs to demonstrate there that they're not that they're not complacent Hmm.
0: this complacency issue is an additional scary fact about our situation because i I think you said at the beginning here on this topic, that people have more or less forgotten about the threat of nuclear war. And the Cold War has been behind us for the longest time until yeah. suddenly now.
1: And it seems like there's no threat. You, we, you and I used to grow up in a time, you're younger than me, but not that much younger, uh, when, at a time where, where, at least I remember, there were, you know, there were 50,000 nuclear weapons. And yeah, and even more ridiculously, people would do these 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 things in school where they'd hide under their desks, you know, to protect yeah. them from nuclear war and all that. Sorry. But anyway, go on.
0: Yeah, those were strong desks. Yeah. So as you say, the, these nuclear weapons still exist, not 50,000, but uh, how, how many, what's the current number? That's, you
1: know? that's what people don't realize. That's why we want to educate them. The, just between the two superpowers, there's probably 5,000 nuclear weapons, maybe all, close to 10,000 nuclear weapons. We have 5,000 nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. and Soviets probably have 5,000. on. On active status, there's, you know, between a thousand and fifteen hundred on each side of our sides, which may not sound dangerous, but of course a small fraction of that would destroy. Yeah, yeah. it's a completely redundant. Over, yes. What people don't realize, it's worse than redundant. The policies have make no sense. There's no strategic utility for them, because right. we're not we don't we're not in the world of mutually assured destruction necessarily more, and the real threats are not of nuclear threats are probably not mutually assured destruction. They're terror. They're- anyway, we can go into those, but the, uh, but the thing is what people don't realize is that our of those thousand, a significant fraction of our weapons are on alert status, essentially launch on warning, Yeah. which, which made sense maybe in a world where we were expecting incoming 20,000 nuclear weapons. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't time for anyone to act before the world was obliterated or our, our country is obliterated. But in the modern world, there's no, rational need. All it does is encourage the possibility of a catastrophic error. And Eric Schlosser and others have written great books yeah. delineating the, the, how close we've come so many times. It's amazing. Yeah. If well, you think let's, about let's it.
0: recommend that book explicitly here. So Eric Schlosser, the journalist, wrote a book called Command and Control, which is absolutely harrowing. And there's a, a documentary that recently came out on PBS by the same name, which it focuses on a specific accident at a, a silo in uh, I think it's Arkansas which just shows you just how haywire things can go based on the, the humble dropping of a a very large socket wrench right like a, the, yeah. the, the guy's yeah. performing a, a maintenance and this 20 pound wrench falls into the silo and ricochets off the side of it in such a way as to perfectly puncture the fuel tank and then you hear a lot about the ensuing chaos but the shocking thing is that The fact that we have not annihilated ourselves or at least killed tens of millions in a single day is due to an extraordinary amount of dumb luck. And when you hear the details, including things like we have dropped 20 megaton bombs on ourselves and two of three safeties have failed and the final safety that didn't fail had all of the solidity of like a mechanical toggle switch, right? That had it been in a different position, North Carolina would have been, much (laughs) of it would have been obliterated. It's just unbelievable that this is the situation we're in. And the technology that is stewarding our current missiles, I mean, we're talking about floppy disk drives and, I mean, just the most antiquated systems you can imagine, and we're we're still on high alert i mean so and we, and the who knows what the russians are up to right i mean if, if it's this exactly. bad on our side imagine what it is in russia
1: exactly and in fact one of the more harrowing examples for me is is an example from russia of someone we actually wanted to nominate for the nobel peace prize cuz unlike many people who win the nobel peace prize he actually saved millions of lives he um he was working in a he was in a missile silo a russian missile silo and there was a false positive there was a signal coming that it looked like a missile was launched from the United States. And then a minute later, another missile was launched and then a minute later, another missile launched. And he got the order to launch his missiles mm. and he disobeyed that order. Yeah. And, and then within minutes, of course they discovered there was a computer glitch, but had he not done that, the world would be in a very different place. And, and it's amazing. It's that kind of thing. I mean, uh, th- that kind of, and uh, happily he life you know, you might think he was, he was killed for that, but he wasn't. In the end, he was he was pensioned off. But, but that kind of um, that kind of act we sh- we need we can't rely on that kind of accidental good good judgment to save the world. And and but just I mean just just step
0: back for a second. We have put ourselves in this situation where, based on the crassest political processes, we are now perpetually under this. Sword of Damocles of our own devising. Yeah, yeah. That's so mistake-prone. And now, as you say, with with the dominance of of cyber reality in our lives yeah. and, the, and the capacity for for misinformation to spread and for you know, our early warning systems to be hacked, the, the prospect of of misinformation triggering this system of self-annihilation that we have built and and and, and maintained barely maintained. It's insane that no one's thinking about this or I mean, no, no, one, no one in the public is thinking about this.
1: Well, people – well, people <laughs> – well, that's – exactly. That's the public. There are people thinking about it. And I will say, again, to promote – not really promote, but to, uh, uh, my origins project, which I'm very proud of, and you've, you've been at some of our events. We, we, we looked at – we did an event on AI recently, but we actually are planning in collaboration with the Bolton and a foundation to look at exactly the relationship between cyber and nuclear issues. We'll probably run an event – both a public event and a, and a rather high level study group on just that, because I think it's what's surprising is that we don't, Mm. those, those two communities don't speak together as much as you think. Uh, but there is a real concern, right? With, with cyber hacking, what can you do to make this, this happen? And, 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 and you're right that, that the public needs to be concerned. One, but, but let me point out one of the arguments that that's made is well, we need to do a $1 trillion upgrade of our nuclear weapons, uh, systems in order to make them you know better well at first more accurate and maybe 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 update the technology but what's amazing is that you that begs the question of wouldn't it be much simpler since since the the system is just a recipe for disaster to get rid of Mm. of of the the largest part of it saving a huge amount of money reducing the risks overall of, of of having a catastrophe and leading to a saner world. So rather than spend a trillion dollars and, you know, have a system that inevitably increases the risks of use, uh, why not simply get rid of most of it? And, you know, ultimately it'd be great to have a world where we get rid of all of it. And there are people who've advocated that, but we don't need even a thousand weapons. We don't even need a hundred weapons, especially if our major, our ma- apparently our major concerns are countries that that have very few weapons hmm. and in fact, we have concerns of a country that has no weapons. I mean, this this whole this whole concern about Iran, which was happily it doesn't have weapons because we acted rationally, which was diplomatically and not militarily. Um, and 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 I and and so our whole we are actually violating the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we're apparently signatories of. Okay, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed by most countries except for the obvious ones, India and Israel, and. And and Pakistan and, and, and North Korea, I, guess. I admit, uh, yeah, I don't, they may have signed it once. But anyway, certainly is Israel, India, Pakistan, those. And we, we sort of view them as outliers because they didn't sign it. We are violating it because one of the things it said is we're trying to stop proliferation so that new countries do not gain access to, to nuclear weapons. But one of the requirements was that the nuclear countries hmm. work as actively as possible to disarm. And that we are not doing that in any way, shape, or form. Moreover, we're sending a signal to other countries. You know, people react by the signals we send. It's the kind of thing that you're, you're an expert on. And we're sending signals to countries that we value nuclear yeah. weapons, that having nuclear weapons makes a difference. And, and if we have those, send those signals, it's irrational for those countries not to want to oh, possess
0: yeah, them. Well, but just look at the fact that we can't do anything about North Korea or Pakistan because they have nukes. I mean, it's yeah. proof positive that having nukes changes your status.
1: Yeah, and we're you know, and we're right now we're talking about you know, bombing Syria. I just saw got a note today that that I mean moments ago that that's being considered. But also, of course, Iran, Iran, uh, and and so what messages are we sending? We're sending the messages not just that you know that that it means something to have nukes, but you know what we think it means something for us to have nukes. So we're going to build better nukes and new nukes because. And the only reason that can be is if we want to use them, right?
0: but again, it it, it it's not just a message. It, in fact, does the destructive capacity of these bombs is so astonishing and and if you if you haven't looked at video of nuclear blasts in the last decade, go on YouTube and just look at some of the biggest explosions ever filmed. It is. Yeah, and obviously I'm not saying this to you, Lawrence. I'm talking to our listeners. It, I, mean, I recently did this, and I was startled to realize as I was looking at this footage that I hadn't looked at it in years and years, yeah, right? And it's, it's, a, it's just as a meditation exercise. Just try to get a, an intuitive sense of what you're seeing here and map it on to the city where you live. It's breathtaking on every level, you know, morally, aesthetically. I mean, it's it's strangely beautiful too, which is also weird. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know? nature. Nature is both terrifying and beautiful in many ways, and it's a natural. I mean, whether you like it or not, the nuclear weapons represent a a natural phenomena that is remarkable, and and it's the phenomena that makes our life possible inside the sun, uh, but it's also terrifying.
0: And the idea that that this could be triggered by accident or error, is one thing that we should find absolutely intolerable. And then there's this added layer, which which we now confront in a way that I wasn't expecting we would ever confront it again, which is you could have people in charge of your government or other nuclear powers mm-hmm. who are so... Carefree in their attitude toward the risks here, and so, and and even so, open-minded oh, yeah, about talking. the prospect of using these weapons, yeah. uh, which we have in the case of Trump. That it's an enormous problem to, to think about how we we walk back from the precipice here, because well, again, here, here's, you, want, here's you, you can't ignore is that in our current world, it matters whether you're a nuclear power.
1: Y- yeah, yeah, it it does. But you know what? What matters is we treat nuclear policy in a different way. I wrote a piece on and this in the Yorker once, and, and it's, it, it, and because of Trump, there's a discussion, but I don't think it's going to happen. But many people also don't realize, and this is terrifying to people. doesn't matter who's president. There are no checks on the president. The president can order nuclear weapons to be used. And there's no, no one, there's no procedure for anyone, for Congress, for the joint chiefs of staff or anyone to, 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 circumvent that order except maybe someone on the ground. And
0: many of us just found out about that in the, with the the inauguration of Trump, right? I mean it's like yeah, like exactly. we thought that there was some sensible process by which you could constrain the impulse of of some president who's grown demented or had a stroke or just is drunk. I mean, I think I think there actually is a story about Nixon when he was yeah, drinking yeah, a lot during Watergate. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that some some admiral said, "Listen, if the president says anything to you yeah. about uh, you know the codes, you, you're going to call me, and yeah. before you do anything."
1: Yeah, you know, you have to openly disobey. And 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 look, I mean, again, it wasn't crazy. There was a reason. It, claimed reason for this, which was again, mutually assured destruction When Time, there were 50,000 yeah. nuclear wo- weapons, then, then yeah, you got 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And, and so, but we don't live in that world anymore where, where that's, or maybe we, maybe we still do in some sense, but the public should be aware of it and decide which risk they'd rather, they'd rather face to me. That's the whole point of science as an, as a, as a basis for public policy is that scientists shouldn't make public policy. But the empirical evidence and the results of science should form the basis of public policy. So the public should be informed. Informed, you know, they they could just we, the country could decide to do nothing about climate change, but we shouldn't lie about it. We should say, okay, you know, w- this is the world we're going to create. But we, for one reason or another, we want to make money, or we want to want to do this or that. That's okay if that the public. That's part of democracy. But the public needs to know these things about nuclear weapons, and that's one of the reasons. Things like the Doomsday Clock which hopefully can alert the public about that and about the silliness about the fact that talking about strategic nuclear policy is an almost an oxymoron because Mm. there's no place where nuclear weapons using them make sense. And moreover, other things that have been ridiculous that I've written about for a long time, that missile defense, we, we, we spent over a trillion dollars over the last 30 or 40 years on missile defense. We had, it doesn't exist
0: actually i want to ask you about that so uh, there have been successful uses of it in israel against the you know the iraqi scuds
1: well you know but even those if you read some of the some of the real data suggests that the claimed successes are far, far exceed the actual the actual successes
0: so do you not put much hope in the prospects of building viable missile defense 10 Absolutely 20 not. 30 years
1: no okay. Be, there's a, and there's good reasons for it first of all You know, unlike a Scud, for example, a nuclear weapon is different. So there's really basic physics arguments. In general, when it comes to missile, all weapon systems, offense is cheaper than defense. Yeah. So let's say we did build a missile defense system that was 50% uh, efficient, which we don't have. Okay. But let's say we did. I'm talking about nuclear ballistic missile defense. Okay. Then, so then you have that. What that means is that for every two missiles you send, um, one will be intercepted. But once you've figured out how to build nuclear weapons, it's a lot cheaper to build two nuclear weapons instead of one. Yeah. Also, you can build you can build
0: warheads that fragment into 20 separate.
1: Well, that's the next stage. No, no, our missile defense system has never been tested against a realistic threat. It's failed miserably in many cases against unrealistic threats. So, namely, sometimes it succeeds when the missile knows when the missile defense system is told where the missile is coming from and when it was launched, then boy, it can intercept it. Mm. But, but, but it's never been tested against realistic ethics threats. And I, I used to say when George Bush was talking about in 2004, he said, we're going to build a missile defense system. We're going to, we're going to um, deploy it next year that, you know, we'll be 90% efficient or something. And it turned out that 50% of the American public thought we already had a missile defense. And what I said at the time was we should have kept it that way. We just just say, we have it. It's a lot cheaper it's just as efficient it's just as effective as a as a non-working and less threatening because it's less proliferating and 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 so people have looked and physicists have done many studies of different ways of defending against early stage missiles and and um so that ultimately there's no way to have a anything that ronald reagan thought of as this star wars barrier against nuclear missiles because because you can always build offensive systems that are cheaper and can out can avoid defenses yes you can make the enemy enemy spend more money in certain sense but uh but it's 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 largely and strategically a waste of money and it is inherently destabilizing Hmm. because what it does is encourage countries to simply create more nuclear weapons because even if we had a 90 percent efficient system you know the 10 disaster yeah well, not just, yeah, but you can ask how likely it is, uh, is it, how many weapons do you have to go send before you're guaranteed to, get, uh, to have a, 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 a successful strike? And it's something like five, four or five. So you build, yeah. instead of having 10 weapons, you have 50 weapons. Right. And, and you're, you have the same, same aggressive uh, uh, possible impact on this country. And so uh, if you think about the logic of that, you know, it sounds nice. It appeals like many things. It sounds nice to what pe- we all want to believe. And and again I get back to to the to to that's what science is all about. We want to believe that these things are possible. We see them in Star Wars movies and it would be nice to believe them, but we have to we have to be skeptical of ourselves.
0: Yeah. Well, on that point, uh I see we're coming up on the 2-hour mark, but I yeah. I want to touch on Trump because I okay. I find this and I know you and I are going to fully agree about his character, morally and and intellectually. Yeah. But I I'm Now, perpetually living in this situation where seemingly smart, well-intentioned people who agree with, who are interested in in the conversation we just had, right, Who who are listeners of this podcast, who want to know about science, who are atheists, who basically love every noise that comes out of your mouth on the topic of science versus religion, when we get to the topic of Trump, and now it's, you know, for many podcasts running now for me, it's always sort of humming in the background so people yeah, sure. know they're going to be ambushed in an unpleasant way on this topic. But when we land on Trump, the political intuitions divide so radically that you and I will now disqualify our, ourselves on every other conceivable topic because we we'll, we are so wrong about Trump. Yeah. And I there's something very crazy-making about this because... I really feel like we're living in a a society now where something like half the people are failing a test of moral intelligence, for lack of a better word, which, and it's an extraordinarily easy test. Like this is not a hard one. This is whether there's something wrong with lying at a scale that we have never seen before in our political life, whether there's something wrong with Having promoted a person to the highest office in the land, who not only doesn't show any evidence of having the competence that you would need yeah. for the job, but shows no interest in acquiring that competence, and says and says things like he's the smartest person who's ever lived, essentially, yeah. right? So, it's like, there's a yeah. there's a level there's a of delusion. And,
1: yeah, there's a level of intellectual laziness which we saw in, in Bush, but Bush didn't, never made the pretense. That, that's one of the major differences Bush you know was uninterested intellectually, not curious in many things, but he never made the pretense of being the smartest person who ever lived and
0: and, and nor nor would he manufacture misinformation and conspiracy theory this level the, not the level it's just the the velocity of, of the line, and it's just that i mean the thing that I've said this before, but people don't seem to get how at least people on this side don't seem to get what what a crucial piece this is that. It's not just the line, because normal political lying, normal lying in any context, at least pays lip service to the importance of truth. Like, if I'm going to lie to you now, I'm going to lie in a way that I hope you won't detect, right? My, so my lie will be crafted, its boundaries will be crafted. It's a, it's a bad jigsaw piece, but it's, it's meant to fit in the space provided so that you won't detect it as a lie. What we have with people like Trump and his surrogates, you know, Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway, we have a, a complete disregard for the reality testing of any possible audience, right? They
1: just do not care that what they say
0: maps onto reality at all. because they
1: can know they can do it with impunity. I think this is the point. I think it's not that people are willing to accept the lies, which I agree with you about. I think there's this cognitive dissonance which and I see it all the time because I in my in responses to tweets I make or pieces I write that people say these aren't lies uh, that they they literally everyone lies uh, well, it's all I, fake news I, I, yeah it's all fake news and i and my reality is what i want it to be and that that is what's enabling this that you can do the, in the current climate do that with impunity because of a whole bunch of series of steps of reducing uh, uh, the 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 negative effects of of inventing realities the fact of being able to manufacture reality successfully in a way that matches on with what people want to believe so people will want to believe that trump has brought back jobs if he hasn't or people and they'll and they'll be convinced of that and we're all that way we, we all that are that way at some level and this is just an extreme version of that and and we're seeing how dangerous it is in ways that were sort of below the surface before. It's not, I think that people are saying, I'm willing to accept him. There's a certain segment of the population who say, yeah, I know he's a liar, I know he's this, but he's gonna help me one way or another." And The number of rich people I know say that, for example. But I think a large part of the population says, you know, th- there's just no no reality, uh, they're all lying, and there's no, maybe, and, and what I want to believe, because I'm gonna search for it on the internet, it validates my belief, yeah uh, and you can do that on the internet, whatever you believe you can find validated and that's again i come but keep coming back to that the only I see no counter to that on except to educate people on a more much more basic level about how to tell fact from nonsense, mm. how to test ideas, and until we start educating young people who are in a world where they need that to become effective adults if if democracy is to survive, then I think we have huge Huge problems. There's that that one thing, and the other is, and I'm trying to think. I was trying to think of something where we could disagree. (laughs) But is, I think a lot of this is based on fear. And I wrote it again in a piece I think in the New Yorker that you know I think it was Goebbels. I I can't remember, but he said, if you want to make people do what you want, doesn't matter whether you have a democracy or dictatorship, make them afraid. Yeah. So if you can breed an innate fear in people, then they're willing to believe anything because they're
0: but the problem is there are Good reasons to be afraid of. Uh, yeah, things. I know. And we and, trafficked and, uh, but, in fear for a good long while yeah, on this exactly. podcast. Exactly.
1: And and, uh, and and it would be great to come back because I have issues to some extent with the utility of focusing on uh, on fearing certain things that I think in on a in a realistic level on a daily basis from for in everyday life in Americans aren't aren't worth being debilitated in fear over and should not govern our decisions about how to act as uh, individually or as a nation. And I think you and I disagree a little bit at that level. I think at the fundamental level, we agree. But actually, let's
0: let's just pivot to that. Do you have 10 more minutes? Because I'm psychic. I'm reading your mind now. And I can tell that you are worried about the reception your New Yorker article on terrorism got.
1: (laughs) Well, that's one example. Yeah.
0: So let's let's talk about that.
1: Well, here, let me talk about another piece that I was writing for the New Yorker, which I'm not sure because there's been an editorial change there. And I think whether my pieces continue to appear in the same way, will it's not not clear. I wrote a piece that that I think would have appeared, it may not, but but it's basically on the same thing, that I would argue that the real fundamentalist threat, the real one, the real one we have to worry about on a daily basis that affects millions of people in this country, is the fundamentalist Christian threat, not the fundamentalist Islamic threat. If I live in a Muslim country, I happen to think that that's a, then yes, it's a huge threat Mm. because what they're trying to do is control hearts, minds, lives, and everything and kill you if you, and remove you if you, if you don't buy into that nonsense. But I would argue that yes, of course, there are people who are, who view the West as, as the enemy and, 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 and would like their controlling of the hearts and minds to become broader. But their first, I would argue that their first priority is to first control the hearts and minds of people in, in, in Muslim countries. And then to move beyond that. Yeah. But, well, well, but, uh, but 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 I would argue that the real people who are ultimately affecting in a negative way in a real way every day are people like Mike Pence and the people who want to impose their religious fundamentalism on the women and, and the health of women and the he- and the happiness of gay couples and and, and really, in a real way, affect in every day this country. And, and so I think the average American on a daily basis, and this comes back to my article, which indeed was where I was vilified and people used that term that I'd never heard of before, which was regressive left, which in some sense I heard emanated from you or your colleagues. I, I don't know the exact history of it. My
0: colleague and friend Majid Nawaz, who I wrote this book with on yeah. Islam, yeah. he coined that term, but neither of us directed it at you.
1: Well, I know that I know you didn't, but I got many other people, of course, many but many people directed because because they claim that anyone who did not view Islam, the claim that I get a lot of times is if you are not saying that Islam is the prime existential threat facing humanity at the current time, uh, then you are aggressive.
0: Existential is a big word that I wouldn't I wouldn't add here, but. Well, so let me just ask you a few questions because I we, we agree about a lot here, and we may agree about everything. But
1: I think at a fundamental level we probably do. But but it's this could be our
0: our version of a this is a moral double slit experiment yeah, where yeah, okay. you're going through as a wave, I'm I'm going through as a particle.
1: Yeah. Well, let's
0: just let's just take the Pence piece. So it was interesting, and this is leaving Islam and terrorism to one side for just for a second. In my hopes for impeachment, however dimly.
1: Yeah, framed they are at the moment. I think they'll bring themselves down. By the way, I I do have. I I think they're going to tumble. They're going to cut their own throats. But anyway, we'll see.
0: But implicit there is that I would prefer Pence to Trump, and now that's quite a startling thing to to realize, given how much I'm on the same page with you in my concern for Christian theocracy and or and and just or, or just the the malign influence of Christian dogmatism in our lives on on every level, scientifically, socially. Yeah. So. Do you not share that preference? Would you would you oh, pause I, I, if, if you yeah. had the impeachment button within reach? Would you hit it or would you pause over the prospect of Pence? No, I,
1: I agree with you. I, I have to say, I agree with you. I, I'd prefer an evil prick to a lunatic, and, and 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 I guess at some level that yeah.
0: I think that might overstate it in, in Pence's case. I, I don't I don't know why. I think
1: he I think he is I think he's fundamentally evil. I do. I think he's a he's an evil man.
0: You may know more about him than, than
1: I only, do. Only, and he's not. He's not evil. He's evil in the sense that. That let me let me say let me as Steve Weinberg said you know religion is such that they are good people and they are bad people good people do good things bad people do bad things when good people do bad things it's religion yeah. so I don't think he hates people but it, because of his fervent religion what he ends up is doing things is wanting things that are evil right. so that's my that's the point I want to make
0: okay so he wrote this article in in the New Yorker which yeah. suggested that the real problem is that we overreact to acts of man-made destruction in this case terrorism and if we could only just dial back our overreaction we would realize that this is not as big a problem as everyone seems to think and we wouldn't live in this much fear and we wouldn't be fighting unnecessary wars and we wouldn't we wouldn't have this this grotesque expenditure of time and energy on a problem that is, it's still a problem, but it's mostly a problem for other people over there in, in, in Muslim societies who are getting blown up. And it's just that the, the body count, if you look at the body count, terrorism is not a great source of mortality in America or in the West and is unlikely to become one. And we should, we should rank order our concerns more or less in line with body count. And people attacked you for that viciously i've
1: never been more viciously yeah, i was yeah. amazed really
0: <laughs> yeah anyway and that's a measure of their fear but I, I think it's also a measure of a couple of things you got wrong in that analysis and the one that i think is the most important which is even granting your analysis that people are irrationally afraid of this particular source of destruction i think that that irrationality is so deep that you have to price that into the consequences of the next terrorist act. So, for instance, the next hurricane we have that kills 3,000 people, we are just going to clean up after the hurricane and initiate our own you know, local disaster relief and move on. The next terrorist attack that's on the scale of 9-11 that kills 3,000 people in an American city could completely tank the global economy, right, given the reaction. And yeah,
1: well look, I mean, absolutely.
0: Then I would argue that given how likely that on your terms overreaction is, we should price that in in advance, knowing that it's going to destabilize us for a decade. And then then we have to be motivated to prevent it along those lines based on the real cost, however irrational it
1: is. Well, yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right that because of the the o- overreaction to terrorism, any, any major attack like 9-11 will have a dramatic effect on the world economy. And, 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 and I argued actually after 9-11 that in some sense, the terrorists won because of the fact that I have to, you know, I have to take off my shoes. The fact that my life was changed dramatically because of the fact that they'd successfully hijacked a few planes and that every person in the world now had to change the, the, the way they, they traveled at an incredible economic cost mm. was in my opinion, giving in to that, I mean, allowing them to win because what the effect was far greater than just the horrible. And I don't want to, and once again, you know, this is what I do. I don't want to minimize the horror and the violence and the disgusting things that are done in the name of, of in that case, in the name of some perverted view of Islam, or, of, or maybe even not that perverted view. It's just a literal view, perhaps, just like any literal view from Judaism would be perverted too, because you'd stone your children and stuff like that but i think you're right that that it will have an effect but i think we 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 feed into that by the minute that there's a, a 10 people killed when in the and i i guess i find it remarkable in the country which does nothing about gun control mm. which does nothing about stopping children being shot in classrooms in which last same year there were 345 mass killings last year the year i wrote the piece uh, 345, that meant more than four people were killed by guns in, yeah. that, in, in a year, okay? And, and there, were two, there were two examples of, of quote-unquote, mass killings done in the name of terrorism, namely people motivated not because they were jealous of their name, you know, whatever, it was because they declared, declared allegiance to whatever, that we should ask ourselves, we should not ignore the threats that exist. And we should not ignore the fact that there is great, there is potential, you know, for, I happen to think that a much, going back to nuclear weapons, a much greater threat than in a, than wasting our money on ICBMs, which basically puts a cross on your country, right? You send an ICBM, we know where it came from, we destroy you. If you blew up a, uh, if you had a nuclear weapon in a canister in, a, in a New York Harbor, it'd be a lot harder to know where it came from. And if you ask me, we should spend more money on that kind of defense against mm-hmm. nuclear threats. Um, so those threats are real, and we should, we should be thoughtfully caring about them. But to, to argue that every American, that we should, well, the real reason I wrote that argument, article was in response to what Trump was trying to do now. The claim that we should stop Syrian refugees from coming into this country. Yeah. That the women and children are dangerous because one or two of them might kill some people. But, in, but these are, that, that, I find that so offensive. These are the people who are victims Violence in the name of Islam, in the most part, or in the name of greedy dictators, or you pick your choice, hmm. and that we should fear them. That's what motivated that article, and it's still what motivates me because we benefit far more from you know. There's a young Af- woman from Afghanistan who I'm happy to say is now studying here. Who you may know the story of her yeah, that we helped. Yeah, but, great story. But but we but these stories are great because these are the people that are going to make America great. A lot of them. These are the people. You know this country has been built on refugees, and so to build the fear of people because there might be a dozen or a hundred Americans killed because of it is—it may sound cold-hearted to say it—is I find distorting, making the noise much more prevalent than the signal.
0: So I, I agree with much of that, but I—I think there are still a few strands you're not acknowledging, which should change the calculus a little bit. Which, so for instance, I, I would say that on on the Syrian refugee piece. It's not even, or need not be, the case that our country is made better by immigration. I mean, let's just say, let's let's remain agnostic about that. Yeah, yeah. We have a moral obligation to help the the unluckiest people on earth, right? I find it intolerable that we are now so terrified of what might happen that our ability to respond to the worst cases of human suffering is is being hampered. I mean, that's that's much worse than having to take your shoes off. In the airport, that's yeah. The yeah. moral stature of our of our civilization is is being eroded.
1: I I never talk in moral issues. I should say that I try and avoid the moral question. I know you do, and 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 I appreciate your thoughtful views that.
0: But you do. I mean, you talk about good and evil, and I guess and, I talk and, about and,
1: ethical issues, or what? Well, that's what, that's what, what I mean. What reason? What I, I guess I try and say what's reasonable. Right. But anyway, go on. And I know we think morality and reason are tightly mixed, so we're we're in agreement there. But anyway, I yeah. go on.
0: So we want to help these people, and we re- and that's just based on a recognition that
1: a common humanity.
0: Yeah, a common humanity, and, and that it's just by dint of sheer good luck that you're not a refugee trying to get out yeah. of Syria right now. And it's, exactly. Oh, and or it's your own the, child. And it's yeah. a
1: sheer, not. I'm not sure it's good luck, it's a sheer accident that I happened to have been born in the United States, and, you know, it's this accident of birth, and that's why... You did not earn it, yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, because if I'd been born in... You know, I grew up in Canada. Living in two countries, you learn that all this patriotism stuff is a little niopic as well. But anyway, so go on.
0: But the issue, a few issues. One is that one difference, obviously, between a natural disaster and an act of terrorism is that the act of terrorism being an intentional act born of an ideology that is... Contagious, right? That these are ideas that are spreading into into minds that are, unfortunately, these ideas are captivating enough that even psychologically normal people can be captured by them. Right? we
1: all are subject to to, to irrationality. And
0: no, but we're, but here we're talking about you know martyrdom based yeah, uh, jihadist violence, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this the spreading memes that we're worried about, and there's the fact that each new terrorist attack signifies this spread and the potential for destruction at a much greater scale of the sort that you just described. So, for instance, if someone smuggles a shipping container with a a a Hiroshima-sized bomb into New York Harbor, we can be pretty sure at this point that it wasn't the fundamentalist Christians. This is now to divide concern about fundamentalist Christianity from jihadism.
1: Yeah, they, no, one, one group is trying to kill us. One group is just trying to kill our soul. Okay. I mean, well, I well, don't know whether the soul, but c- kill what makes living worthwhile the hope and dreams of you and your children. And, and they're two very different things. One is violent and awful, but one is intrinsically, I think, as violent.
0: But even there, they're at a different scale. So, for instance, life under the Islamic State. Is quite a bit worse than Ooh, anything anything Mike Pence would want to on his worst day would want absolutely. to implement here.
1: Absolutely, right. and if we lived in an Islamic state, I'd be I'd be extremely. I mean, look, I'm I'm I look. I agree with you. There's no comparison, and and I think you're absolutely right that the, that, that 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 spread of violent craziness that is so based on the literal interpretation of a of a of, a, of, a, of an ancient book that is awful. But what we need to do, it seems to me as a country, and I said this after nine eleven, I said, you know, don't bomb Afghanistan. Just, you know, find Osama bin Laden. But what we need to do is build a thousand schools in Afghanistan because we need to win the hearts and minds of, of the children who aren't being right. educated. They're in madrasas.
0: But the problem is you build schools in Afghanistan and you've got members of the Taliban throwing battery acid in the faces of little girls who are going to those schools. Like the one we
1: saved who who, who had to leave school at age 11.
0: Exactly. So, So again, by the same analysis, you want, if you're concerned about letting in the unluckiest people in the world so as to help them, you should be concerned to help them in place, right? So now, it's, the, the question Absolutely. is like, what what is what should our common humanity dictate? And then, then I think you have to be sensitive to the difference between someone like Abu Bakr al Baghdadi and Mike Pence. As bad I mean, as I mean,
1: I'm sensitive to the difference of individuals.
0: No, but the, and the and the, the, the worldviews that they would want to implement
1: and the worldviews. Uh, what I'm not and 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 let me say we need to address both. But what I'm what I'm trying to indicate and what is unpopular is that there's no comparison between those two people uh, in terms of their worldviews except except you can ask who has more impact on me on a daily basis and the and, and or a young woman in in Texas who can't get an abortion uh, who has more impact who should we be who should we be worrying about in terms of immediate impact on me right now and but but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about the other in fact, I do think we should be spending a lot more money on on you know i wrote a piece once not in new Yorker but scientific american when i had a column there saying educate women save the world that we need to be spending huge amounts more on the infrastructure uh, of basically trying to do what we can to make countries where people are displaced and and in some sense have no hope for the future except for some ridiculous religious zealotry and build technology and bring and 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 educate women so they can that they can that they can help their children because there's a lot of evidence that if you educate women then they do yeah. much more to anyway so
0: well, we we totally agree we totally agree there but let, let me just speak to the physicists in you here because you are okay. living right now in a superposition of all possible <laughs> terrorist atrocities yeah and and some are more likely than others and some are fairly likely some are are so likely that that you and I will both be surprised if we get out of the next decade without them happening right so I would say that something on the order of September 11th happening again in our lifetime is it's it's not one in a hundred.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, got to be. It's awful. But look, but Sam, here's the difference.
0: My point is that you have to price that in now to your model. So I
1: do, I do have to, and I have to say that one uh, uh, one is virtual and one is real. So there's a virtual threat of a of a of a of a, of a uh, to use a physicist's language. The, the 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 threat of another 9/11 is virtual. The threat of Mike Pence is real. We have to take both into account, but to focus on the virtual threat and to argue—and I hate to say it because it makes me sound cold-blooded—I do not, I do not want 3,000 people to, to to die and to families to be displaced and 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 cities to be wrecked. But but if if another 9/11 happened, it is a is an awful thing. But in my mind, it's much worse if we let this country become a theocracy. Wait, 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 wait.
0: The virtual real distinction, I think, is untrue. It's just one is more salient to you. I what's, mean, we, happening right what's happening
1: right now? One's happening right now. One is possible.
0: Well, I'll tell you what's happening right now. You know that there is yeah, inte- that there's intelligence about people planning yeah, that you right. and I just right. don't have access to, right? And you're and right. their plots being foiled. And I mean, yeah, ha- how many overt- people are okay, waking what, up this morning trying to figure what, out how to kill what 30, would people? What I want say is
1: that one's overt and one's hidden. So... So Pence can go break a tie right now and openly say in the, you know, in, in Congress, he's going to break a tie. So, you know, to, to so that so that uh, lesbians and gays don't have equal rights. So he can say, so one is overt and one is one is in secret. But to somehow I guess what I'm what I, I am more I frankly I guess what I'm saying when I do the calculus. It, at the moment, I'm more terrified in this country and terrified is not the word because i don't get terrified i don't think of those kind of things i'm more concerned about the threat on the hearts minds lives and daily life in the immediate sense Hmm. of mike pence but it would be ridiculous not to try to explore the possible threat on the hearts minds life daily lives of people in this country of that external threat and moreover but i and like you i think I think, like you, what 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 I feel is that the best reaction to that external threat is a long-term reaction. That I don't think generally military solutions work for very long or very effectively. That we need to work very, very much harder to ch- to battle the control for hearts and minds in those countries that are generating those terrorists. It's not the terrorism; it's the cause of the terrorism that concerns me, and that. Uh, you know, I'm, there's an old statement, and you're going to say it's very naive, but and it, maybe it is. But you know, I mean, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I'm an educator. I think ultimately it's a long-term process to overcome the backward intellectual environment that fosters a- an environment based on fear and ignorance. The two go together, and it happens in this country too. We're afraid. That's the reason why people are anti-science too. They're afraid of a world that may not be the world they want. Fear and ignorance go together, and the two together breed terror and bad policy. And I think we have to fight them everywhere. Yeah, well, and, you know, and I, I think, you know, so you know, at some basic level, we disagree. I just am amazed that we accept that there that we that we just seem to be moving to accept these kind of vi- intellectual violence that's occurring. From the Christian right in this yeah, country, yeah, no, I don't think we disagree at all.
0: We don't, we don't disagree at all on that front. And you know, as you know, I I wrote a a, a short book just focused on yeah. Christianity. I mean, uh, I
1: really, yeah. it was a it was a brilliant and important book, and 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 I don't want to forget it.
0: <laughs> and I have, I certainly haven't forgotten how much I don't like the aspiring theocracy of fundamentalist Christians. It's just at the moment, I mean, it's this is all of a piece, as you say, with. Misinformation, ignorance, mere fear and hope, yeah. unregulated by any rational consideration of the world we're living in and how to, to maximize human well being. So it is a common project dealing with, with the lies of someone like Trump, the delusions of someone like Pence, the notion of martyrdom in the Muslim world. I mean, we have to, we have to debunk bad ideas in any way that we can, and um, science and a rational education. Is really the best tool we have in hand to do that. But as you know, it's this is a tall order because we, we know yeah, we can put we could put you in a room with a a trained yeah. physicist who believes that God is uh, has tuned the universe to be exactly as it is, and it's not only a generic God; it is the Christian God, and Jesus is His Son.
1: No, it's 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 uh, you know it sounds yeah. We I think we agree. It's it sounds naive. Uh, it's a, this is a fascinating question. It's I think it's these kind of discussions are important to have. And what worries me. For both of us, is when people, when you start to ask a question, when you start to question what is the common meme of the group you're in, and people say, want to silence you, or say, you know what, you're a scientist, you shouldn't talk about politics, or you're this or that, that's when we have to consider. So I think we both agree, let me just summarize that nothing should be sacred. In particular, the things you and I should say shouldn't be sacred. And we should question ourselves all the time, even when we're advocating uh, what we think is right. Yeah, and and, yeah. and other and and none and and the health of the so-called free thought groups should be to encourage free thought, to encourage discussion, not to say, you know, I disagree with you, you're wrong, and and you're no longer part of my my in group. Uh, I think that's the what neither of us want, and I I and I want to use your your soapbox uh, to to try and encourage people to continue to have lively conversations of the like of the kind that I so much have, enjoy having with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the podcast, Lawrence. And um, I think you will agree that our conversation did not at all exhaust what is of interest in your new book. <laughs> and uh, so I, I will have a link to that on my blog where this podcast is embedded. Just tell people what your Twitter address is so they can follow you, because they should.
1: L-Kraus 1, the numeral 1, L-Kraus 1. And thanks again, and I'll come back again. It's a pleasure. Keep it up, Lawrence. Okay, you too, Sam. Take Take care. care.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.